This is Jocko Podcast number 50 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. To be or not to be. That is probably the most famous of all of Shakespeare's lines. And in fact, it's so famous that it's often unfortunately used as a punchline, used as a joke. To be or not to be. It becomes easy to forget what Shakespeare is actually talking about. He's talking about death. And more specifically, in this case, he's talking about suicide. And Prince Hamlet, the character that delivers that famous line, who's often called insane, but who himself says, I am essentially not in madness, but mad in craft, meaning he is playing the role of insanity to further his own objectives. But not everybody even agrees on that point. But here's what Hamlet does say. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. In other words, he's talking about, is it worth it to suffer through the problems we have in life? And he goes on, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing, end them. Meaning, should we, should we fight against the pain of life, this sea of troubles? And in that fight, should we choose death? Which is the only alternative to life. And he goes on to die, to sleep no more. And by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. So he's saying that death lets you escape all these hardships of life and these thousand natural shocks. And he finishes it out. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished for, to die, to sleep. And he's saying that that is what we should wish for, to die. And that is this most famous of soliloquies is about killing yourself it's about it's about suicide now we have a guest on today 
And this is a guest who I've come to know since I sort of debuted in the world. And in fact, this guest happens to be the person that actually debuted me to the world, that brought me into the world. (laughs) His name is Tim Ferriss. And in September of 2015, he interviewed me on his podcast just prior to the release of my book, Extreme Ownership. Now, at the time, I was certainly a, a Tim Ferriss listener. I'd read the four hour work week, I'd listened to a bunch of his podcasts, but I, I hadn't listened to all of them. And, and I think I had kind of the broad view that most people have of Tim. The, the human guinea pig, the investor, the author, just you know, Mr. Smart, successful, healthy guy who's out there enjoying the fruits of life. And, and with all that well, stuff in my mind, there I was in the first ever interview I had ever actually done with anybody ever and it's a, a setup. The setup is, it's an interesting setup going into this for me, right? We're alone. I don't know Tim. I'm not the most open person in the first place. I don't know Tim. We meet two hours before. Now we're in his house alone at a table. And the interview starts going kind of Jocko-ish pretty quickly. And I start going a little bit heavy on some stuff. And at one point, Tim asked me about books that I've read and I brought up about face and and then I brought up Cormac McCarthy, Blood Meridian. And I described how I liked that book because it captured the darkness. And not just the darkness of the world, but the dark nature of human beings in the world. And Tim, after I described that darkness, he said something along the lines of, like, hey, Jocko, I I struggle with this. How much should I voluntarily expose myself to darkness? Because I've had my own ups and downs that I contend with. And, and then he kind of took that question from there and, and from that personal level and he really quickly transferred it into something that was more about the world than about humanity in general. But the initial question that Tim started to ask, it wasn't about the world and it wasn't about humanity in general. The question that Tim was asking was about Tim. And I didn't catch that during the interview. I, it went right over my head, but when I listened to the interview, I caught it and I heard it. And I heard that beneath this guy that we all see, this happy-go-lucky exterior, kind of a solid image of mental and physical and spiritual strength there was some darkness in there. And Tim and I were going back and forth a few weeks ago, and he said something to me, 
you know, I'm not sure if I'm aligned with the types of guests you normally have on your podcast. And thinking back instantly to that moment, I said, oh, no, Tim, you, you definitely are. Because you are a person. You're a human. And this is a podcast about human nature. And despite all the success you've had, You've had some challenges in your life. You've had some dark times, and you still do, and we all do. And and people ask me about suicide. I mean, most of the time it's some indirect messaging or some messaging through Facebook, but people will, will ask me about suicide, whether they're having those thoughts, and I haven't really addressed it directly. Because even though it's, it's, suicide has definitely impacted my life directly in some awful and horrible ways that I'll never forget. But I don't have that same level of knowledge. So... Today we do have that level of knowledge. And we're gonna dive into it. So without further ado, (laughs) Mr. Tim Ferriss, welcome to the show and thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me on. Now, I I, I don't even wanna play around here. I want to. I want to get right in. I want to get this hard stuff done. I want to talk about this. This book that you you just put out is called Tools of Titans, and in this book, and I, I just got done telling you this. You know, I I looked and found the blog post that you had originally written. That's named a very Tim Ferriss name, in my opinion. It's it's some practical thoughts on suicide. Right? Only Tim would think about practical thoughts on suicide. <laughs> so. Uh, and you sent me the book, and I had found that blog post and I'd read it, but when you sent me the book, I saw that you had put it in the book, and I think that was awesome for you to do that, to put it in this book so that people have access to it. So I want to get into this piece of it right now from the book, and here we go. Some practical thoughts on suicide. In this chapter, I'm going to talk about suicide and why I'm still on this planet. It might seem dark, but the objective is to give hope and tools to those who need them. It is a much larger number than you might imagine. I kept the following story secret from my family, girlfriends, and and closest friends for years. Recently, however, I had an experience that shook me, woke me up, and I decided that it was time to share everything. So, despite the shame I might feel, the fear that is making my palms sweat as I type this, allow me to get started. Here we go. So, you had some, you had some serious hesitation on putting this out there in the first place. I did. It sat in drafts for between six and nine months with fits and starts because I had a lot of doubt about my motivations for putting it out, the good that it might do, the bad that it could have indirectly that I couldn't foresee, unforeseen consequences. 
and uh, just the embarrassment and also the fear of how my family would respond. So there was a lot, there were a lot of factors that kept it in my drafts folder for a very long time. And then this story that you tell here is is the story of what made you finally decide to to talk about it in the public forum. And it what happened was a, a guy came up to you and said you were at, a, at an event. A guy comes up to you and says, "Hey, can you can you sign this for my brother? It would mean a lot to him." And you you know you give him the hey, no problem. You you kind of notice that there's something odd about the way the guy is acting, but you sign the book. And a little while later, as you're leaving, he comes up and he says, you know, I, I got to talk to you. And you say, hey, got to leave, but what do you got? Let's go. Walk with me. And you find out that this guy's younger brother, who you had just signed the book for, had recently killed himself at the age of 22. And this guy told you people listen to you, Tim. Have you ever thought about talking about these things, about suicide or depression? You might be able to save someone. And then you say here in the book, I didn't know what to say. I also didn't have an excuse. Unbeknownst to him, I had every reason to talk about suicide. Some of my closest High school friends killed themselves. Some of my closest college friends killed themselves. And I almost killed myself. And you held that in for a long time. Long time. And there you were, a public figure, and you had not you had never talked about this. Now, as I said, for me, I certainly have brushed up against suicide, starting with my best friend when I was a kid, uh, a kid named Jeff, and I had joined the Navy, and I was in SEAL training, and I got we had kind of grown apart, and uh, I, I talked about this when I was on your podcast. You know, I grew up with in in a rural area in New England, and there was a lot of hippies and just kids, you know, deadheads and whatnot, and I didn't go in that direction, but my really good friend did, and he ended up getting heavily involved in drugs and booze and everything else, and he got involved with the girl, and when they broke up, he killed himself in a horrible way that I'm not even going to talk about, but I got word of it. I was going through SEAL training, and I get word that this kid, you know, that I was such good friends with killed himself and then on top of that now we go 1993 and again one of my best friends in the SEAL teams absolute stud of an individual of a human being an incredible athlete quarterback at the Naval Academy by the way record holder at the Naval Academy just a hilarious guy, leader of men, just incredible human being named Alton Lee Grizzard. He got murdered along with a female naval officer named Carrie O'Neill. They got murdered, both of them, by another Navy officer who 
also went to the Naval Academy, who then killed himself. So murder-suicide. And I'll tell you what, anybody that knew Grizz, I mean, this was just devastating. Devastating. Just damn near broke my heart. And then most recently, in December of 2012, another SEAL that I knew, who was the commander of the SEALs in Afghanistan, the commander of all the SEALs in Afghanistan, on deployment in Afghanistan, goes to a meeting, gets done with the meeting, goes to his room, shoots himself in the head, kills himself. Uh, no, no suicide note, no strange behavior, no indicators, nothing. And like I said, this guy was in my sister platoon at SEAL Team 2. I mean, just a, a great guy, respected SEAL, and boom, gone. And I guess that's why I, I, I feel strongly about tr wanting to bring you on and, and talk to you about this because I know you felt it. Personally, you're talking about it. And I, but personally, I actually have never wanted to kill myself before. Now, I, I will say there are times in my life where I, where I cared less about living than other times. And it certainly in combat, I definitely accepted that I could die and I was okay with it. And there's probably times in combat where I crossed the line a little bit towards the just straight bring it on. <laughs> Let's do this. But I, I never seriously ha had that, you know, that thought. But it's something that I know is out there. Like I said, I've, it's brushed up against me. It's crushed me. And when you say in this book that you almost killed yourself, and, and we'll talk about what got you there and, and how you ended up there. But how real is that feeling when it hits you? There's nothing realer. I think that the, the delusion or the set of delusions that you find yourself in seem as real as this table that we're sitting at. As real as anything you see or hear. And the voices in your head, that internal dialogue, the self-talk, is a powerful thing. And it can be powerful in constructive ways, and it can be powerful in extremely destructive ways. So for me, it felt permanent. It felt inescapable. It felt concrete. I felt like I had a column of evidence, exhibit A through Z, to indicate that I would be better off killing myself. So it wasn't a desire to, it wasn't a desire to end my own life. It was a a desire to stop suffering and stop causing the suffering of others or what I perceive to be inflicting on my loved ones and family members and so on. And feeling trapped. I think above all, it's feeling trapped and feeling alone. Like you are flawed and in being flawed, you are unique and you should be, just be sent back to the factory and that equals taking yourself out. Extremely real though. It's definitely, it, it was, it, it was as concrete as any emotion or any object or any interaction that you could imagine. And it's, it's got to be weird now. And, again, it, and you say this, like you're looking back at this now. And of course, this is so easy to see and go, you know, I was not thinking straight. 
And right now you can tell it's not real. Or those problems that you perceived, you could tell that they weren't real problems. They weren't unsolvable problems. They weren't worth ending your life over. But you get trapped in there. And I think in particular, you do get trapped. And in my case, there were, say, five or six different events that happened roughly at the same time that caused me to spiral. And as I spiraled, I got to a point where I felt like I would never contribute anything meaningful to other people or to the world because I was so handicapped by this pessimistic, dark view of the world and of myself. And I was like, well, if that's the case, why go through all this pain to try to solve these various problems when clearly, <laughs> like you said, in retrospect, it's ludicrous. I mean, it's ridiculous, but at the time, it seemed anything but. Why not just control alt delete? Let's just shut this computer down. You know, I got, I got, I get to see this a little bit right now. Um, you know, I got kids, and you know, my, I got teenage daughters, and little things in the world that they think are the most important, crazy, you know, things in the whole world. I mean, literally, like a dress or a pair of shoes. I'm like, it's okay. We can get you some more shoes or whatever. It's you get to see a glimpse of what you're talking about just with any human, any human anywhere that even in a workplace where someone's going through some problem at work and they didn't get the report turned in on time and, and they're acting like it's the end of the world and it's actually the end of nothing. It actually, in many cases, means almost nothing. Almost nothing. I'm going to go back to the book. So you say to Silas, which is the guy that, that had come up and asked you to, to sign the book, you come up and say, or you, you say, look, I'm sorry for your loss. And then you had sort of the internal talk once again with yourself and you say, I'd failed his brother by being such a coward in my writing. How many others had I failed? These questions swam in my mind. And then you look at Silas and you say, I will write about this. I promise. That's probably when you made your first decision to get these drafts going. Actually, you said, and with that, I got into the elevator and I added my own phrase on here and you should have had me edit this. But you said, and with that, I got in the elevator and I added and headed down because the next part of this is called Into the Darkness. And you've got a great quote in here that I'd never heard before. The quote is, they tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. And I think that's an awesome quote. They tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. And I can tell you that I didn't bury these thoughts and these feelings. And I'm, I'm thinking back. I'm just trying to kind of deconstruct where where my attitude came from and all this stuff and I think that when I grew up I listened to some things that may that that just pulled those seeds right out of the ground like they were plain as day when you grow up listen to the kind of music that I listen to just dark heavy music that sang about this stuff and I'll tell you there's a uh, one of the best pieces of music that you can hear on this subject and I don't even it's dark but Henry Rollins on an album called Lifetime 
there's a a song called Gun in Mouth Blues. And I saw him perform it many times live. And it, it, it like took me through those emotions. You can go on YouTube and try and it doesn't deliver the way it was when I was a kid, when I was 14 or 15 years old. And I got a guy on stage, a grown man to me at that time who was you know 25 or something, whatever Rollins was at that time. And he's singing about that. And so for me, I'm thinking to myself, well, those seeds weren't buried for me. They were out, right? I was thinking about that, but I wasn't, like I was okay with me. You know what I'm saying? And uh, and a lot of the music that I listened to back then talked about that stuff. So I didn't bury those seeds ever, really. And I'm is that something that you did? Obviously, you put the quote in here. But how do you see yourself? How did you bury those seeds? So the, I included the quote for a few reasons. The first is effectively exactly what you alluded to. So these internal demons, these self-doubts, these self-criticisms, I felt were a huge weakness. And so to compete, to whether that's in sports, academics, or otherwise, I kept that all in. So I, I actually grew up on the same music or similar music, but I was listening to Slayer. I was mm. listening to a lot of dark music, which yeah. I can still appreciate the double bass and so on in a Slayer album. But for me, because I never, I never chose to express any of that, I had no release valve. So it actually fed, I think, in a way, this type of self-loathing. And uh, it could have been biochemical in the first place. I don't know, uh-huh. quite frankly. And I mean, my family, at least on one side, has a history of uh, extended depression and schizophrenia and so on. Uh, schizophrenia less so. But So maybe it started there. Who knows? I don't know what the origin is. Uh, and... So I included that quote as a reminder of two things. A, when you try to suffocate or bury or disregard these thoughts and emotions as opposed to contend with them or deal with them in some fashion, they are seeds. And you're pouring fertilizer on them when you try to neglect and avoid them. The second reason I put that in is to remind myself if you feel like external cons- uh, if you if you feel like external circumstances or external actors, meaning people, mm-hmm. are stacking the deck deck against you or trying to bury you, right? Trying to defeat you in some fashion, you are the seed, so you can recover from that. Uh, and there's strength to be found in the struggle. So I included it for both of those reasons. Yeah, that's and I've talked about that before this idea of battling demons, right? And one of the things I, I, I said on the podcast, on one of the earlier podcasts, is I just said, don't let the demons ambush you. Don't let them sneak around in there. You gotta bring them out. You gotta, you gotta bring them out and confront them and deal with them. Don't try and bury them. Bring them out. And so that's, that's very similar. And also, when you were a kid, this is, this is also interesting because you were an overachiever as a kid, right? I was good in school. I was very, very small. I got the shit kicked out of me uh, routinely up until about sixth grade. But you wrestled. You, you were I, a good I, wrestler, right? I did. Yeah, I got up to uh, national level towards the end of high school. I did not wrestle in college since it was Title IX at Princeton where I ended up going. But I, I was a uh, academically certainly a high achiever. 
and a good wrestler and, and a really good wrestler academically. Mm-hmm. Do, I mean, you're going to Princeton, right? right? So that's pretty much. And then you landed Princeton. That, and, by the way, and that everybody is kicking ass. <laughs> in, in. Yeah. No. No. I. I. I I had very supportive parents, did really well in school, got to Princeton and realized everyone was at that level or higher. And it's a different playing field. And the, and is that one of the things you think that as you started thinking about this darkness, you're looking at these other people going, oh, they don't have that. I got to bury it because they're all they're all smart as me and great athletes. And so I, I, I'm competing with them and I don't want to have that chalk against me of saying, oh, you know, I'm a little bit sad today. That's bad. I'm going to be positive. Uh, for sure. I think that was part of it. The, and on one hand, I enjoy competing. So <laughs> having a bunch of stronger competitors didn't bother me at all. I was actually pretty thrilled about it. But I did feel like to compete on this higher level playing field, uh, it would not behoove me or help me to walk around bemoaning my weaknesses <laughs> at all. So I didn't. And I felt like particularly being the... F- going to that school was a real stretch for my entire family and extended family. I felt like I had to deliver and there was no pressure from my parents whatsoever, but I don't need anyone else's pressure. (laughs) I can deliver plenty of that for myself. And I felt that a lot was riding on that. And I, the, the plan of course, as many people might have in their lives is get good grades in high school, go to a good college, get great grades in college, go get to a fantastic job and so on and so forth. So, which led up to, I mean, a lot of the catalyzing events later in college in senior year that, that were really the, the straws that broke the camel's back because I was, I was, I wasn't always near the precipice. I mean, I was healthy for long stretches of time. Then I'd have maybe a depressive period, but it was manageable oftentimes coincided with winter. I don't handle that type of weather very well, which is part of the reason that I now live on the West Coast. And did you, did you, were you self-aware of that? Uh, very aware. Uh, very aware. At the time, probably less aware of the weather having the impact uh-huh. that it did. But, but you would literally say, oh man, I'm, I'm feeling down right now. This is one of my secular things. It'll be okay. Definitely. And used. That's pretty introspective for a kid. Well, I spent a lot of time in my own head, and there are benefits that come from that. You can get very good at academics, and then sometimes you're just your own worst enemy. So being trapped in my head uh, is not always the, uh, the, the carnival that you might think it to be. Sometimes it is, for sure, uh, depending on what I've eaten or imbibed uh, as well. But <laughs> that's a separate podcast. The, the, um, but I've learned to manage it, and we're jumping a little bit ahead, but for instance... Uh, and we'll get to it, I'm sure, but the, the writing of the senior thesis, yeah. that was a, a major trigger uh, for a, a lot of reasons. Now, for instance, you know, writing the book that's sitting in front of us, I flew a researcher from Canada to be with me almost 24-7 while I was in the final six to eight weeks of writing this book. Why? Did I need him to come from Canada to be there in person? No, absolutely not. But I wanted another human around so I wouldn't go red rum, red rum. <laughs> and Well, when you write 700 page books, my brother, <laughs> you're going to end up yeah. a lot more likely to end up in the red rum than in the normal rum. Uh, so you're right that we do start getting into this. Um, let's talk about this. But can I, can I, can I say one absolutely. thing? Absolutely. One of the reasons, and you did give me a 20 to say this, so in fairness, but one of the reasons I recommend your podcast so much 
is because you talk about the darkness and you talk about how common it is. And I think the reason, for instance, out of the blue, one of my friends, super handsome guy, wealthy family, ladies throwing themselves at him in high school, kills himself out of the blue. No one expected it. And I think that when you find people in any circumstance who end up taking it to the that point, it's because they think it is a rare flaw. They're the one in a thousand who happens to be so fucked up beyond repair that it's not worth continuing. And by exposing and discussing the darkness, you realize, <laughs> I mean, that's 50% of the people or more 50% of the time. Yeah. It is extremely common. No matter what you think your defect is, anger, depression, you have plenty of people to keep you company. So, uh, in any it's case, it's a little crowded up there. It gets crowded. So that's 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 a great point. Um, at, let's go into this then. When when we go into what happened and some of the things that that went down, this downward spiral is, is what you call it. And 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 again, in here, I'm going back to the book. In hindsight. It's incredible how trivial some of it seems. And, and I put my note in there next to that. It's like, because you're detached from it now. And that's such a key thing I talk about all the time, right? We want to remain detached from things. We don't want to get wrapped up in the emotions. We, we want to stay back. Because when you detach from it, every answer is so clear when you're not wrapped up in it. This is this stuff that, that, that happened to you. Sure, was it challenging? Yes. Did it suck? Was it hard? Yes, of course. But detached from it now, you're looking at it, you're... You, you might literally be laughing at this stuff now. Oh, I do. <laughs> I mean, I wrote it. And that's why at the end, there's this part <laughs> towards the end. It's like many of you might be thinking, wait a second, a Princeton student got a really bad grade? Yeah. Boo fucking who? Like, yeah. are you kidding me? Yeah. But that's the whole point, yeah. right? That is so, the whole point. Is that you don't, is that people, we don't detach. We get absorbed in this stuff and it becomes our world. So you get, well, here, I'm going back to the book. I include wording like impossible situation, which was reflective of my thinking at the time. And it begins senior year, slated to graduate in June of 1999, somewhere in the next six months, all these things happen. First, you fail to make it to the final interviews for McKenzie Consulting and at some other company, and you start losing confidence. So this is the first time you get kind of a little bit beat in your life a little bit. For sure. I was doing extremely well academically, and all of a sudden, I didn't know what I was doing wrong. And just just to provide a little bit of context, and it's and like this is like I have this huge smirk on my face because it's so ridiculous, you know, in hindsight. But at Princeton or any Ivy League school, really, there are only a handful of industries that recruit. Primarily, you find management consulting firms and investment banks. Why? Because they want to hire you and then use your pedigree, Princeton, so that they can charge their clients, in the case of management consulting, $500 an hour for photocopying, <laughs> right? It's not it at all as exotic as it might seem, but everyone is competing for those slots. And I didn't know what to do next, so I just decided, being very driven in that way, I'm going to compete for what everyone is going after, mm -hmm. because I think I can beat them. Now, this is the first time that I really felt like, A, I got my ass handed to me, with, and B, this was important. If I lose a wrestling match, I know why I lost. Here, I didn't know what was wrong. So that unknown variable hit me reasonably hard. I can imagine that now you're doubting everything. In a wrestling match, you go, hey, my conditioning wasn't good. Or, hey, my takedowns weren't on point. In here, you're just going, what was wrong? 
I don't know what was wrong. Exactly. Something's and, wrong with me. And no one could tell me. Even the people who interviewed me, they wouldn't give me the feedback. So that's, that's point A. Uh, very shortly thereafter, have a long-term girlfriend break up with me, which again, in isolation, I think I could have weathered and I had weathered many times before, but I'm kind of reeling on my heels a little bit and then my... Hold on. I'm going to go to the book here because you give some pretty good specifics on that. She breaks up with you because, this is from the book, because I became insecure during that period, wanted more time with her and was massively disrupted to her varsity sports. But my point is that these things compounded, right? Exactly. You get insecure and you think, why didn't, they, why, did they, why didn't they hire me? And then you look at your girl and you say, well, I'll go to her for comfort. Hey, but, you know, I need more from you. And she's going, which all humans do, which yep. is, oh, you're, you want to throw yourself at me? I don't need you. Exactly. It was not only that, but <laughs> so she wakes up like you do. And I tend to go to bed when you do. And so I would want to have these late night conversations and it, it screwed up her competition. Mm -hmm. I mean, and uh, it was it was extremely important to her, rightly so. She was a varsity athlete. So exit stage left, girlfriend gone. And then the the primary piece of this, sort of the in my mind, the checkmate for a loss was the interactions that I had with my counselor or thesis advisor and I was in the East Asian studies department I started in psychology then I moved from neuroscience to East Asian studies to focus on language acquisition and uh, this the senior thesis just to put this in perspective not every college or university has a mandatory senior thesis Princeton does and it breaks a lot of kids so I'm not unique in this but I thought I was at the time it breaks a lot of when kids. when you say breaks like they don't graduate because they don't finish it or they just get emotionally they go through total turmoil and it, it both of the above and what I realized after the fact is a lot of kids kill themselves actually uh, at uh, many of these top schools and I'm sure other schools but it's it's such a pressure cooker or the kids perceive it that way god I feel old calling them kids but regardless it's such a pressure cooker I got for you Tim <laughs> <laughs> it's very very common so it, it really does break a lot of kids but it's generally let's just call it and it varies by department but 60 to 100 pages sometimes longer and it can count for 25% of your four year or let's just say cumulative departmental GPA it is weighed very, very, very heavily. So even if you've had straight A's, it can really throw a, a, a wrench into the works if you want to finish with a very strong GPA. Now keep in mind, I had already been turned down for jobs. And this is, so they, they go together here. Lose my, my crutch that's keeping me up, which is the girlfriend. And then at that point, I, I am researching for my thesis. Everything's going fine so far. And I meet with the head of curriculum design for Berlitz International, which is near Princeton. Had a great dinner, and he said, it's really too bad you're graduating in X number of months because we actually have a fantastic job for you that I could give you right now. You'd be a perfect fit. So I think to myself, well, this is going to solve a few different problems. I don't know what I want to do. I'm not getting picked up by these other companies. Why don't I take some time off? and figure out the job and then figure out the thesis. Now the thesis, I'm going a little bit out of order here, but the thesis was important because I had a meeting with my thesis advisor who had his own research agendas and, and as is very common in academics, 
professors will utilize the help of students at times to integrate things or research things for them. And slave he, labor. Slave labor. And he dropped a pile of, say, 50, 60 pages of original Japanese research. So this is all in Japanese to integrate into my thesis. It wasn't a fit. It was... It was a round peg in a square hole. It would be nearly impossible to put into my thesis, but I decided, all right, well, he's the advisor. He's tenured. This is mandatory. It's not an optional. Then I figured out, oh, my God, well, I could take this job, take a year off, do a great job on the thesis, come back, problem solved. So I have a meeting with my thesis advisor to tell him that I'm going to do this, not realizing at the time also that his, his research needs of me are time-sensitive. And he lost it. He basically he basically said, oh, you're just going to cop out and take all this time off of school? Well, it better be the best thesis I've ever seen in my life. And not so subtly saying, I'm going to tank you. If this is what you're going to do, I'm going to I'm going to tank you. And I, I don't think I was misreading that. Mm-hmm. And I was completely bewildered, then really upset, meaning sad, depressed, then really angry. And I was like, you know what? This is bullshit. Like this is Princeton University. Focus on the undergrad. This is this should be a solvable problem. So I go to people in the administration and I tell them what happened and collectively the response was effectively he wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Because once you have your immunity bracelet in the form of tenure, you're not getting voted off the island. Right. And uh, even people within the department would not pick a fight with him uh, or even really seek to clarify it. And uh, that was when I felt totally hopeless and uh, that was kind of the beginning of the end as I saw it at that point it's very important to note I was not suicidal Mm -hmm. I just felt completely trapped and without options I ended up regardless taking the year off Uh, and that is where things got particularly dark because I went from being surrounded by students didn't have the girlfriend, but I was in a social environment mm-hmm. to working for Berlitz. But what I didn't realize was going to be the, the setup, the logistics was working remotely. What does that mean? That means that I'm off campus now with two of my friends who go to work every day, normal hours, and I'm left in a bedroom or a living room alone to try to work on my thesis and to do work for Berlitz completely solo. That is where the carnival in my head is a very dangerous thing. I'm outmatched, right? And um, we can we can keep going. But yeah, that's... I mean, so the other thing that struck me as once that happens, now you also start to see your friends graduate, graduate, yeah. and they're all done. They're done. They're and gone. You got the heavy burden still on you. Yeah, that was that. That was seem to be a huge piece of it as as well and then i'm gonna go to the book back to the book here your your coping mechanism is to cover myself in sheets minimize time awake and hope for a miracle no miracle arrives one afternoon as i'm wandering through a barnes and noble with no goal in particular i chance upon a book about suicide it's right there in front of me on a display table Perhaps this is the miracle. I sit down and read the entire book, taking copious notes into a journal, including other books listed in the bibliography. For the first time in ages, I'm excited about research. 
in a sea of uncertainty and hopeless situations, I feel like I've found hope. The final solution. The idea just appears in a book. Yeah. And you go full Tim Ferriss on this thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, with the same enthusiasm and rigor and OCD that I tackle anything, I I dove into that and uh, went to Firestone Library, great library at Princeton, to check out as many of those referenced books as possible to do my research. And one of them was not in. Uh, one of the key pieces. And so I, I, I made a request, put in a, a request to get notified. And I was living, I think it was in Lawrenceville, which is near Princeton at the time. And I think it's worth noting that I was past the point of deciding. Yeah, actually, I was in planning. You say that in the book, and I'll, I'll just read it. It's important to mention that by this point, I was past deciding. The decision was obvious to me. I'd somehow failed painted myself into this ridiculous corner, wasted a fortune on school that didn't care about me, so what would be the point of doing otherwise? To repeat these types of mistakes forever? To be a hopeless burden to myself and my family and my friends? Fuck that. The world was better off without a loser who couldn't figure out this basic shit. What would I ever contribute? Nothing. So the decision was made and I was in full on planning mode. In this case, I'm dangerously good at planning. I have four to six scenarios all spaced out, start to finish, or sorry, specced out, start to finish, including potential collaborators and covers when needed. So as you just said, as you just pointed out, you were full on Tim Ferriss, researched complete, decision made, going forward, figure out the best way to execute this and make it happen. Oh yeah. Yeah, I remember, and actually, something that's not in there. I, I recall. I recall when I had the plans, and then it was a matter of scheduling, and I was waiting for that last book to see if I missed any research <laughs> before proceeding. But I had driven to Firestone, taken out these books, and uh, was very lethargic. I remember. I mean, this coincides with a lot, this type of deep depression, just very tired all the time, and. Uh, laid down in my van, my my used minivan, hand me down for my mom. After going to Firestone and just slept for like three or four hours and woke up and I was like, okay, let's just get this done. Let's figure it out and put it on the calendar. And the what prevented that it was pure luck. I had forgotten that instead of using my Lawrenceville address, I hadn't changed my address with the registrar. So my mail was going back to my home address where my parents lived on Long Island. And so my mom gets this postcard in the mail. I mean, thank God this didn't happen a few years ago. It would have been via email. She wouldn't have seen it. And it said, in effect, uh, good news. (laughs) The book on suicide that you reserved is now available at Firestone Library for pickup. So I got a very nervous call from my mom, which I did not expect to interrupt plans. Did you, did you think your mom, did your mom sense it? Oh yeah, I could tell. I mean, her, her voice was, was very shaky and, uh, I quickly tap danced and talked my way out of it. And I said, Oh no, 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 it's a friend at Rutgers. He could, couldn't get it at his library. So I may, I reserved it at Firestone, but it, it shocked me out of my self-imposed 
false reality. And it was, it sounds so odd to say, but it was the first time that I realized my suicide would affect no matter how cleverly I laid it out, it would ruin the lives of people around me. Because I thought, well, let, let me figure out a scenario where I can make it look like a complete accident. It won't look like suicide. It'll just look like an accidental death. I mean, I really, I really figured it out. And uh, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. I realized after that phone call that... Did your mom confront you with it? She asked me about it, and I was very fast to come up with the Rutgers lie. Did she say like, hey Tim, are you okay? She did, she did, okay. she did, and we love, okay. you know we, we love you, right? And it, oh, it, it okay. wasn't a 30 second conversation, okay. it was a longer okay. conversation. And there were follow up phone calls. Props to mom for picking up on that. Yeah, yeah, so that was uh, dodging a bullet metaphorically now, by a millimeter. I'm gonna go into this here. Uh, it's sort of, you, you get through that. You, you kind of get through what you just said. You realize that this wasn't just about you. This was going to hurt everybody. You get through that. And then you say, the very next week I decide to take the rest of my year off truly off to hell with the thesis and focus on physical and mental health. That's how the entire sumo story of the 1999 Chinese kickboxing Sansu championships came to be if you read the four-hour work week. So you, you go on a full-on year off just complete. Now my question for you on that is what about normal people, right? Normal people that can take a full-on year off, they gotta find another way to get their focus off the what's going on in their brain at their work and get out of that carnival and focus on their mental and physical health while they're working their job, taking care of their kids, doing whatever it is they have to do. For sure. How does a normal person pull that off? Well, there are, I think, a few strategies and tactics that I have used and continue to use. So it's critical that people understand. It's not like I summited the mountain, slayed the dragon, and I'm done. This is, this is, uh, this is a movie that tends to, like Groundhog Day, repeat itself. Not necessarily that intensely, mm -hmm. but if you are predisposed to periods of darkness, as many people are, you need to develop coping strategies. And it's not so much the year off, it was a focus on other things right. that helped. And there are a few. I mean, looking back on it now, I have a better toolkit. The first is people talk about mind over matter, mind over body, mind over body, this type of stuff. I think body over mind is extremely underrated. So if you can't get out of your head, get into your body. Number one, that is the number one get out and move. And really things didn't change for me dramatically until I started, <laughs> oddly enough, getting punched in the head, going to the, the toughest boxing gym I've ever seen in Trenton, New Jersey, where I was the only guy not on work release. <laughs> so I don't recommend that therapy for everyone. But uh, you know, one broken nose and a lot of bloody sparring sessions later, I was feeling uh, more like my old self. So if you can't get out of your mind, get into your body, I think is very important. There are a lot of good biochemical reasons for this. I'll back that up too, and, and uh, Tim Kennedy, who's a MMA fighter, amazing, just an awesome guy. He posted something on Instagram of, of a month ago or something like that, and Facebook and whatever. And basically, he was saying he's addressing PTSD and and that sort of darkness, right? And he basically said, "Look, guys, get out, 
go work out, go push yourself. And it's very similar to what I tell people like, hey man, you know, do jujitsu, lift weights, sprint, surf, go get outside, get into your body. So I think that's universally, mm-hmm. I universally agree with that statement. So, so let me lay out a couple of super concrete recommendations. And I should say in advance, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on the internet. So you may need, uh, certainly there are many people who need uh, medical interventions, uh, whether it's uh, pharmaceutical or, or otherwise. In my case, a few things that very much help with or without other adjuncts, <clears throat> cold therapy, so cold exposure. And this has been studied very, very effective as a supplemental or uh, singular therapy for antidepressive purposes. It's very, very effective. So I, I routinely, and when I'm home in San Francisco, for, for instance, even on Long Island in the winter, I take short cold showers, pure cold showers. And uh, Van Gogh, for instance, when he lopped off his ear and was put into treatment, he had two ice baths every day. That was one of the treatment protocols. And it's, it's been looked at quite closely in the last few years. So cold exposure, one. So even if you don't get outside of the house, that's an option. You're going to take showers, hopefully, anyway. Uh, then you have, I, if you can afford it, I think a, a, a good test to have performed is comprehensive blood work. Look at micronutrient deficiencies in particular. So you, you could have, this is very common with depleted uh, ground soil, selenium deficiency, zinc deficiency, copper deficiencies. Th- these affect hormone production and much more and can be fixed relatively easily once you identify them. I have friends, for instance, one was deficient in selenium, was going through a depressive period, and he started eating Brazil nuts, very high in selenium content, and he, he, he called me a week later and said, I feel like I'm on cocaine. <laughs> now, that's a dramatic example, uh, and no, you shouldn't use cocaine uh, to fix your depression, but blood work, I think, is if you get your car checked more often than you get your body checked, you need to rearrange your priorities. Stoicism would be the next one. Uh, I find Seneca in particular, uh, moral letters to Lucilius, Marcus Aurelius. People tend, if they read both, to either be full-on Marcus Aurelius guys or full-on Seneca guys. And uh, there's not a whole lot of overlap. I tend to read Seneca. But I will listen to, say, one of the letters, letters of Lucilius, every few days. And if I'm going through a tough period, I will listen to a 15-minute letter every day in the morning as I walk to say get a cup of coffee. And what stoicism helps to teach you at its core, I think, or what it represents is an operating system for being non-reactive in high-stress situations. And high-stress is relative. High-stress could be going to the DMV and waiting in line for some people. But stoicism is also not just something you read. It's a practice. So there's... uh, Fear setting and fear rehearsal is very important. So the practicing the worst case is something that I'll do regularly. For instance, taking a few days of every month to fast, I do that. Uh, taking a few days uh, every month or every quarter to like, sleep on your kitchen floor in a sleeping bag and eat oatmeal for a few days and realize even if I have to quit my job, even if I get fired from my job, because a lot of concerns for many people are financial, I'll be fine. Things are fine. Things are manageable. So I spent a lot of time defining the worst case scenarios, not just being vaguely afraid of bad things happening and practicing them so that I build up 
some level of immunity and not immunity, but it's an inoculation. It's like mm-hmm. getting a flu shot. Yeah. Stress inoculation. This is what we, we did in the SEAL teams to each other. You go through yeah. hard training, you put all kinds of combat stress and that way when you get in these scenarios in real life, you're kind of used to it. Well, exactly. And um, one of my other favorite quotes, and I'm probably not going to get the pronunciation right on this name, but Archilochus, I think it is, says, we do not rise to the level of our hopes. We fall to the level of our training. And that applies to a lot more than military. It applies to everything. Uh, so, so those are a few recommendations. I do think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention some type of meditation or mindfulness practice, which can take dozens of forms. It can take the form of exercise, anything with a repetitive motion, or anything, quite frankly, that forces you to be present state aware. If you're performing Olympic lifting, I guarantee you're not thinking about your to-do list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> or the argument that you had with a coworker. That's, you know, I think it was when I was doing a follow-up for the first uh, podcast that I did with you, and somebody asked me about meditation, and I was like, no, I don't meditate. I, guess what I do do? Surf, jiu-jitsu, weight lift, all this other stuff. So that kind of falls into, again, I don't know, because you, you know, when you say, do you meditate? My answer is no, I don't meditate. You don't see me sitting in a corner with my legs crossed Indian style chanting, right? I don't do that. Do I get those benefits that people talk about? Do I feel them when I'm on the jiu-jitsu mat or when I'm Olympic weightlifting or when I'm doing whatever these physical activities I do? I guess I do. I guess that's where it is. And I think my word that I go back to all the time is being able to detach. I already said it once a day is, is being able to detach from these situations, detach from these, these stresses that are there. And, and actually going back to the book here, you say, I returned to Princeton, turned in my now finished thesis to my still sour advisor, get chewed up in my thesis defense, and I don't give a fuck. And I think that is a very powerful tool. (laughs) That is a very powerful tool. And it got me through all kinds of things. And I'll tell you specifically, like, oh, things are going bad at work? Fire me. Go go ahead. You you, want to fire me? Do it. Bring it on. I'll, I'll find another job. I'll go do something else. You know, even in the SEAL teams, you know, in, in my book, I talked about this horrible situation that happened with the fratricide. And that was the beginning of deployment. Well, as things continued on deployment, more it's not like the bad things stop there. Other bad things are going to happen. And what I knew was that I was doing the best job I possibly could do. And if you guys above me in the chain of command want to come and fire me, bring it. And it wasn't that I actually didn't care, but I kind of told myself I didn't care. And when you, when you release yourself of that stress of caring, you can actually perform better. Mm-hmm. You perform better when you say, you know what? And we talk about with fighters all the time. Fighters will be in an event and maybe they have a hard match and they barely get through and then they go, you know what, screw this. I'm just, I don't even care if I win or lose. They go out there and have the performance of a lifetime because they've relieved themselves of that stress. So sometimes not caring is one of the best antidotes for do performing better, but it's very contradictory because you're saying, okay, I got to perform really well, so what am I going to do? I'm not going to care, but I want to perform well. But you've got to, and I, I used to say this with guys, would deal with girls, right? In the SEAL teams, you got guys, they're going through, you know, they're, they're young guys, right? They're 20 years old, 22 years old. And so they get these relationship problems and sometimes you got to help them through that. And one sure. of the things I'd say, I'd say, listen, listen, buddy, you know, they, they would be sad because they, whatever. And I'd say, listen, man, you got to not care. And then I'd say, you can't just act like you don't care. You have to actually not care. That's what you actually have to, you have to actually not care. And if you do that, you're good. 
and you can walk away. And somebody asked me that the other day on Twitter. How do you get over a, how do you get over someone that you love that doesn't want you anymore? And I was like, wish them luck, walk away, don't look back. Don't look back, you gotta not care. And I think when you said, when you wrote that in the book right there, I think it's a powerful thing. It, it is, and I wanna look at the ingredients that led to that, or at least one of them. Uh, so a key component in that entire story is after deciding, after having the mom intervention, after deciding to focus on other things, getting the thesis done but not staring at pages on the floor in my house by myself 12 hours a day, I, I was offered an opportunity, it was half joking, but from a friend of mine I'd wrestled with who was going to be competing in the Sancho Nationals, Chinese kickboxing. So that became a focus. That became a clear goal where I knew input in, output out, you know, garbage in, garbage out, good training in, probably good results out. Maybe I get knocked out, but there's always that chance. <laughs> and the reason this is important, you don't need to have a large athletic event, but what I've realized I accidentally did then and now I always do is much like, and I think you're saying don't care, another way that maybe you could phrase it is not being preoccupied by it, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're an investor, let's just say you're not a full-time investor, how do you create that peace of mind? You diversify your portfolio so you don't have all your eggs in one basket. You can do that in life in a number of ways. One of them is diversifying your identity. So the way that I had set myself up for failure is all of my worth was set up in whether this thesis would be a success or not. And there were factors outside of my control that could affect that. What I try to do now, and I recommend this to startup founders all the time, I'm like, look, if your startup is the way you measure your entire worth as a human being, there are factors outside of your control that could tank it, macroeconomic or otherwise, competitive, et cetera. You can't have it dictated by how well your company is doing that day. So, for instance, why don't I show you how to do a very simple deadlifting protocol? And therefore, as a result, even if your company is having the most difficult quarter imaginable, if you're putting 10 put, pounds on your deadlift. 10 pounds on my max, baby. Yeah, exactly. all good. That's a winning week. That's all and good. And so I try to have at least three primary goals, which would seem to, dis to, to distract me. Maybe for someone who isn't predisposed to depression and darkness, you can have one singular goal. For me, having, say, three provides me with that diver that identity diversification. Yeah, but and also the, it sounds like the you're not going to pick goals that are counterproductive. I mean, you can run a good company and still increase your deadlift. 100%. Right? And work on your breath hold. And none Absolutely. of those things are going to... They're all gonna, complimentary. They're all going to help. Exactly. They're all complimentary. And I should also say, this is going back to the, the meditation piece. So meditation is a terrible word. I mean, it needs a complete brand overhaul. It's just ludicrous. It carries a lot of baggage with it. Uh, another option for getting your monkey mind out of your head so that you can function properly is to, and we had a funny exchange on Twitter about this, but is to journal in the morning. And really, you can look at morning pages, I won't get into it now, but stream of consciousness writing for three pages will very often show you how stupidly trivial your concerns are. Uh, it makes it concrete. When you try to write it out and you're like, wait, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Why am I I'm gonna take that one step further. You wanna know what it actually does? Well, in my mind, what it actually does when I'm writing something, because I now write for my own podcast, right? 
when you write, you are forced to detach from what you're writing. Hundred percent. You are forced to detach from it. So when I'm writing something, I'm going. You're looking at it. It's you're not. It's not in you anymore. It's out there. Mm-hmm. So that is a good way to detach. It's by writing something down. That's another thing that happens when you do pros and cons list, right? Oh, I'm gonna. Hey, I don't know what decision I'm gonna make. I'm gonna do pros and cons. Well, all you're doing is physically detaching, physically pulling those things, those ideas out of your brain, putting them on a paper, and now you're detached from them, and you can make a good decision. Mm-hmm. I hate when I agree with you, Mr. Tim Ferriss. <laughs> <laughs> it, makes, it makes the internet so much less fun when we agree. <laughs> but uh, a few other uh, recommendations. One would be, and this is something that I've used as a coping mechanism often. If you can't make yourself happy, and happiness as a word is really problematic, I think. And chasing it tends to mean you're not going to catch it, by the way. But if you if you are in a low state or a, a depressive state and you can't figure out how to make yourself happy, just try to make other people happy. And it seems cliched kumbaya, but it's like, look, something as simple, and this is something that I do, as paying for the, co- for the coffee for the person behind you in line at Starbucks can actually have a significant impact on the well-being that you, you experience in a day something tiny like that or like sometimes i'll just walk in i'll be like all right it's a friday there's six people in this coffee shop all right round of coffee on me like it, it's it's such a simple thing to do but cheapest therapy you will you will ever have you want to know what i do what's that? It's kind of similar to that but it's a little bit different when i interact with some let's say i'm not a coffee drinker but let's say i'm in a restaurant but you know a 7-eleven right a 7-eleven i'm going in there i gotta pick up whatever a bottle of water when I interact with the person that's selling me a bottle of water at 7-Eleven who's making $8.25 an hour, I treat that person like a human being. Yeah. I treat that person like a human being. I say, hey, how's it going? Yeah, just this bottle of water. It's hot out there, isn't it? Hey, I hope you have a good day. I just do that. Because I always see people in the world that treat those other people like they're not people. And I think that just dehumanizes you as an individual. So somebody that's cleaning toilets and is coming out of the thing with a with a the bag of garbage and whatever and it, it, hey man how's it going everything cool you know hey thanks something something like that I think those are uh, important and I definitely the 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 way you put it in the book is if you can't seem to make yourself happy do little things to make other people happy very effective magic trick focus on others instead of yourself. Totally agree with that one. Going to the gym. The other ones you put in here is going to the gym, move for at least 30 minutes. I tell this, this is like the solution to everything, right? Yeah. Oh, you got problems in your life? Cool, go to the gym. <laughs> cool, go get a workout on the next, next let's let's at least start there. I think those are those are super powerful. And to give some specific recommendations that uh, if you're not particularly prone to working out by yourself, a couple of recommendations. These are gonna sound funny, but any kind of partner or group exercise, and you can take your pick. I think rock climbing is fantastic. Any kind of ballet system, ballet. for instance. Yeah. Any type of dance. <laughs> I have to recommend dance on the Jocko no, podcast. You can't do that. <laughs> Echo, edit that out. <laughs> Acro yoga, even better. I'm going to keep going here. Okay, we're going in the we're going in the black hole here. <laughs> Uh, or it could be Thai boxing, right? Well, we, Somebody with pads. Interact with yeah. a fucking human being. We like to say jujitsu around here. Jiu-jitsu. <laughs> jiu-jitsu. Uh, I'm just, no, you, you, just involved with jujitsu enough to get choked out on a regular <laughs> basis. No, you actually you got a great list in here of uh, practical gremlin defense is what you call it. 
you know you talk about and these are all all in the book that you put out all these little tricks they're not necessarily to combat depression they're just things for people to maybe do better in their lives morning rituals you got productivity tricks you got how do you face things that you're afraid of you got the jar of awesome you got gymnastics you got acro yoga, but I'm not going to talk about that one. <laughs> but my point is, you got a bunch of these things written about in the book, which I think is 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 very helpful to people. Hey, I, I got to put this out there too, just because people are listening to this. If you're in that zone, one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five suicide prevention line. If you're there, give it a call. Twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. Get yourself help. Get get through it, brother. And if you're prone to those cycles, also one of my very close friends, uh, who, by the way, extremely successful CEO. So material professional success does not make you immune to this necessarily. And that should be reinforcing and reassuring for people. Meaning to say, the people you see on magazine covers, they might very well be fighting the same battle that you are, something very, very similar. And uh, what this friend of mine did, extremely successful. Uh, I mean, top 1% by any measurement. And uh, he, he got close to the edge a number of times. And he realized he didn't care about himself, but he cared about his promises that he made. So he made a, no, an, a non-suicide pact with his brother because he knew that he would never break his word to his brother, even when he didn't care about himself at all. Hmm. Which is another effective approach. I believe that. I know plenty of guys, at least in my old job, we definitely all cared more about our friends, our brothers in the SEAL teams than we did about ourselves without question. So that would be a, uh, a powerful thing there as well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it to your little section here where you wrap this, this section up of the book. Back to the book. My perfect storm was nothing permanent. But of course, it's far from the last storm I'll face. There will be many more. The key is building fires where you can. Warm yourself up as you wait for the tempest to pass. These fires, the routines, habits, relationships, and coping mechanisms you build help you to look at the rain and see fertilizer instead of a flood. If you want the lushest green of life, and you do, the gray part is part of the natural cycle. You are not flawed. You are human. You have gifts to share with the world. And when the darkness comes, when you are fighting the demons, just remember, I'm right there fighting with you. You are not alone. There is a large tribe around you and thousands of them are reading this book right now. The gems I found were forged in the struggle. Never, ever give up. Much love to you and yours. Tim. Well, it would appear that once again the the podcast went into the darkness a little bit. 
And I think that's okay. And again, I think that having you on here, Tim, someone that certainly like you just talked about comes across as outwardly happy and successful and loving life and having you talk about these things and having you put them in the book is is a real service to people. I think it's the most important thing I've ever written. Period, hands down, end of story. And that's a bold statement. That's a bold statement. And I think the other thing is that people that aren't maybe necessarily in that boat, it's important that they learn too so that you can recognize, look for signs, understand some solutions that you can give to people. And also remember that the darkness that seems all-consuming, we've seen it time and time again. We've seen it. And it's not. It's not. It is not stronger than the forces of good. The darkness will subside and the light will win in the end. So hold on, fight on, drive on, and look. Look into the distance out there somewhere in all that darkness. There is light. And there's hope and there's renewal and rebirth and there is joy and there is this thing this amazing thing this crazy thing this beautiful thing this horrifying thing this magnificent thing that we call life and it isn't easy wasn't meant to be easy but it is worth every second to live it and with that I wanted to make sure that I pointed out that this book, <laughs> which is 700 and something pages long, actually it's 665 pages long. This book is not <laughs> in any way, this book is not about a book about suicide. This is a fraction, was it five pages, eight pages, something like that. I just wanted to make sure that I covered the subject. I don't think that most people are going to pick up the book and say, oh, I'll cover the suicide section. No, they leave that for me. That's, what that, that's, that's my job here. Uh, but the book, it's, it, what it really is is a compilation of all the lessons that you've learned talking to all the people that you've talked to on the podcast, which is a wide range of different people. And you've taken that and distilled it down. For those of you people that uh, go and listen to Tim Ferriss' podcast and you go, man, what am I, I, I can't get this. I give it two hours. Two and a half hours. Who has two and a half hours? Now you can get it done in 15 minutes. You can get it the distilled version, the, the peak knowledge there. And that that's what the book is. All this information kind of distilled down into nice little digestible pieces like a reference book that you can look at, which actually, now we're going in the question zone, by the way. Hot seat, Tim Ferriss, get some. <laughs> Roles reversed. Uh, first question. 
Can I say something first? Yeah, absolutely. So I just wanted to also note for people who might be listening to this and, and thinking to themselves, well, I'm not prone to depression. I'm not prone to these dark periods. The so-called coping mechanisms that you would use to take yourself from bad to so-called normal, they are also the same strategies you can use to go from normal to better or from better to far better. They're the same. Mm-hmm. It's just... It's just shifting into a higher gear. That's a great point. And I use a lot of those strategies, work out every day, wake up early, get after it. Of course, I, I read a lot, write a lot. Okay. And you know what? I feel pretty damn good right now. How's that? How's that? How's that? Yeah. Apple? <laughs> I feel better. Yeah. And to, and to just put a button in it also, I, I, I have with using these different approaches for those people maybe listening to this and still feeling somewhat hopeless the dark periods have gotten shorter. I've been able to turn down the volume and the joyful periods, the zone-like periods, the productive periods have become longer and brighter. And you can engineer that. It just takes the right toolkit. (laughs) Love it. Uh, This is a good piece of the toolkit right here. Speaking of toolkit, tools and titans. Um, Speaking of the book, this ties into it. The book is filled with all kinds of good ideas and enticing options, and they all sound really good. How do you take and pick the right path and not get distracted by all these other shiny objects that are out there? Especially because the path is laid out, and you think, "Oh, oh, cool! This, oh, this looks really good." You know, I'm going to do this. Do what Tim Ferriss told me to do in this interview, and I'm going to do that. And then you get a week into it, and you haven't, you know, you get it's hard. You realize that it's hard. You realize that you you don't like doing that thing, and all of a sudden you go look for the next solution, and you end up jumping from solution to solution, and you never get any progress because you're too busy trying to chase this shiny object. How do you resolve that? Yeah, is it? This is a common problem Uh, you have for instance in the self-help world you have seminar junkies I don't really do seminars but you have people who go to a different seminar every weekend they get all hopped up on enthusiasm take a lot of notes they do nothing from Monday to Friday and they hit another seminar it's like a junkie hit getting them getting a dope hit but they don't put in the work so the the way that you stack the deck is by understanding behavioral modification in a a few ways. And you don't have to do a lot of reading about this, but there are a few necessary ingredients. One is, if you just look at the literature, do less than you think you're capable of doing. So what does that mean? If you are 100 pounds overweight and you are starting exercise after no exercise for 20 years, do not start off with five days a week of an hour of running on a treadmill. The pass-fail threshold is too high. So you set it. First, let's get you to the gym. That is priority, number one. So make it five minutes of walking on a treadmill two or three times a week, let's just say. Of course, my preference would be weight training, but makes an easy example. Anything beyond that is bonus points. When I write a book like this, which is just a monster, and like you said, kind of a choose-your-own-adventure book, but two crappy pages a day, best writing advice I ever got, your threat, your Quota is two crappy pages a day. You don't even have to use them. But if you, if, you ha- if you put out two crappy pages a day, that is a successful day. And it takes away the performance anxiety and the procrastination. If you've never flossed, you want to floss? Front teeth. That's it. <laughs> get, those, get those pearly whites in the front done. Actually, for- I got an issue with that. 
Okay. If you break out the floss and you can't floss the rest of your teeth after you get done with your front ones, you got issues. Well, get in the game and floss all your teeth, people. <laughs> Come on. So I think I think we got to get people there with the, the gingerbread trail. Maybe appropriate for the flossing conversation. But so <laughs> the point is, though, if you want to cement a behavior, you have to break that behavior down into a few pieces. One is just getting out the floss and starting. Then the other is finishing. There are different components to it. So if I can get someone to say five sessions is my general guideline, make it as easy as possible so that you cement the first five sessions. Flossing to the first front, to your front teeth. Generally, people are going to do more. But you start there. Do it for five if days. You don't do more. Call me. <laughs> We're gonna <laughs> Jocko. We'll you. send a drone to your I'm house. I'm gonna come floss the rest of your damn teeth <laughs> with shoelaces. <laughs> His boots have big shoelaces, folks. Don't let him do it. So there's that. the The other piece that is very underestimated is incentives. And what I mean by that is, and actually a guest on the podcast, Derek Sivers, who's an incredible entrepreneur and uh, sort of a philosopher programmer, made millions of dollars, donated it all to music education. He's a real character. But he said, if information, if more information were the answer, we'd all be billionaires with six pack abs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> more information is, is not the answer. Generally, uh, of course, there's good and bad information. But I'll give you a great example. And this is kind of a ridiculous one, but it proves a point, which is I have a friend named AJ Jacobs. He's a writer. And uh, he wanted to get into better shape, but he'd never been an athlete, never really worked out, never watched his diet. But there he is. He's got one kid, another one on the way, and um, skinny Jewish guy. But he described his physique as a python that had swallowed a goat physique. So he wasn't morbidly obese, but just not looking super hot. And uh, he knew what to do. He just wasn't doing it. So he wrote a check to the American Nazi party for $1,000. And I believe it was his best friend, this like merciless friend he gave this check to. And he said, if I don't lose 20 pounds by the end of next month, something like that, I want you to mail this check in, which would put his name, AJ Jacobs, known writer and Jew, on the list of contributors for the American Nazi party. He lost the 20 fucking pounds is the punchline. And you can use sites like coach.me or stick, S-T-I-C-K-K, where you actually create an anti-charity so that there's a nonprofit or a charity you'd rather nuke than give money to. Uh, you can actually put money into escrow, and if you don't hit your goals and they have referees and judges and so on, that money goes to your anti-charity. And it sounds so ludicrous. You could also do something simple like a betting pool. I know people who have never lost weight, and they, let's say five coworkers, each put in 100 bucks, And whoever changes their body composition, ideally, rather than a scale, mm-hmm. right, but using a... Uh, a DEXA scan, for instance, gets the pot at the end. And it is incredible how hard people will work to not lose, A, and then B, lose money. I know Mm -hmm. two guys who worked at Google, both fatties at the time, and uh, one of them has since lost more than, I want to say, 80 pounds and run a few marathons. But it started with a commitment to go to the gym together, and if anyone missed the session, they had to pay the other person a dollar. These are people who make 100,000 plus a year, no problem. And it worked is the is the funny part. But incentives, whenever you're like, how can I change this behavior? You need incentives. So give your give your close friend who you know would love nothing more to, than to see you humiliated pictures of you, your like fat ass, I'm just making this up, but like whatever, in like your tidy whities. Mm-hmm. And if you don't lose X number of pounds by Y point in time, those go on Instagram. End of story. Like you will lose the weight, I promise you. <laughs> But there need to be incentives. Humans are incentive-driven machines. 
And so those that when when now we're trying to narrow all this information, do you pick one? Do you set a certain amount of time? Like, okay, I'm going to stick with this program here. Kettlebell swings at night, right? I'm going to do 75 kettlebell swings at night. Do you say, I'm going to do this regardless of the outcome? And I think you did this with podcasts too. You said, I'm going to do eight podcasts or six podcasts. I'm going yep. to record them regardless if I hate it. doesn't matter. I'm committing to it. So that's sort of a way to avoid distractions of, on other things as well. Definitely. So there, there are two different aspects to that. So the podcasting was a goal, but I always try to set goals where you can win even if you fail. So these are goals that have side effects that carry over. And Scott Adams, creator of Dilbert, talks about this in Tools of Titans, actually. He calls it systems thinking. And in the case of podcasting, he did this with blogging. I asked myself, what can I take out of this in terms of skills and relationships, even if it bombs as a podcast? I can get better at asking questions, which means getting better at thinking. I can start to minimize my verbal tics, both of which will help me to do research for books later. And... On down the list, there were maybe uh, 10 different things that w I would benefit from even if the podcast failed. So six was this critical mass. I tend to do things in terms of sessions five or six times. That's, that's usually my experimental minimum. But for a period of time, let's just say behavioral modification. So kettlebell swings or fill in the blank, some kind of dietary intervention. I'm going to start with intermittent fasting. Okay, so I'm going to fast 16 to 18 hours a day. I've done up to 10 days, but let's just say I'm starting with 16 to 18 hours a day of fasting. Then I will measure things. It's a very, I don't want to scare people off, but scientific approach. It's like you have to know what effect something is having. So you can do that subjectively, zero to 10, how do I feel? Or you can look at things like number of reps, weights lifted. I mean, I'm a, I have my, my, mug of, my mug of tea and my get after it Jocko mug approved. <laughs> Thank God, if I had an unapproved, I'd look at all these knives on the table. Uh, but I have, you know, this is one of my training logs right here. And I've had these training logs since I was 16. So I like to treat most of my behavioral experiments, exercise experiments, dietary experiments as a two-week experiment. And that's, that's the minimal effective dose that, that I'll use in cases like that. Uh, and I'll always do the fewest number of things possible. So let's just say you have... You read a book like this or any other book. I think I take the opposite approach. <laughs> Unfortunately, probably bad. I'll just go as many as I can possibly get. <laughs> get it done. So, yeah. so for those of you who don't know, Jocko is a cyborg. He's a robot. Uh, but No, I'm actually just an idiot. <laughs> Poorly programmed robot. But the, the, the reason, here's how I think about it. When I'm looking at goals or I'm looking at behaviors, I ask myself, all right, I'm really enthusiastic. I have this list of 40 things that I might do. Which of these, if done well, will make the others irrelevant or unnecessary? I'm looking for a lead domino. Which of these will make all of the rest irrelevant, meaning I don't need to do them, or easier? And that is how I choose the behaviors or the goals to focus on. And then once I have those, just so I can control my variables to the extent possible, so if I'm changing my diet and six different exercise routines and my sleep all at the same time, I may not know which is contributing to higher reps in the kettlebell swing, right? Maybe the kettlebell swing is killing me, but because I fixed my diet, <laughs> I'm actually recovering properly. So you don't have to take it to that level. BJ Fogg, uh, F-O-G-G, has done some very interesting work in this area. Uh, but I would say, honestly, you want to get good at training yourself and <laughs> this is going to sound ridiculous and it is kind of ridiculous. 
take a dog training course or train a chicken. Chickens are the most interesting because they don't respond to negative reinforcement. But maybe that's not Jocko's way. You need something you can like hit with a lash. <laughs> train a, I don't know what that would be. What do you train a chickens to do? Uh, so the, if you train a chicken, clearly not. I didn't even know that was actually a thing. Well, <laughs> so, so it, is a, it is a litmus test. There, there, there's a couple, and I'm blanking on their name right now, who trained more than 1,500 species for espionage purposes mm. at one point. And they started as marine mammal trainers. So they were training mm. dolphins, orcas, et cetera. And you can't just like roll up a newspaper and bad orca and hit it on the head for a lot of reasons, but it doesn't work. So they have to use A, positive reinforcement. And the, we, the, we really get into the weeds with this, but they also use a reward marker or a, or a bridge, which is a clicker in this case, or a whistle to indicate when the animal is getting closer to the desired behavior. So in the case of a chicken, you could teach it to say turn counterclockwise hmm. or turn clockwise, take a certain number of steps and then come back to you uh, to receive feed. You're only using feed. Uh, but you know, one of the quotes <laughs> that I really liked from a trainer was, you shouldn't be allowed to have a child until you've been required to train a chicken. Um, and there's a lot of truth to that, but it's just operant and classical conditioning. But any, anyway, I, I could really go down the rabbit hole. There's a great book called Don't Shoot the Dog about this type of training. Uh, but I digress. The, the point being, understanding that we're all incentive-driven, I think, is, is, is very important. And then trying to work on one or two things at a time because you're only doing it for two weeks in, in the way that I, the mental model that I use. Mm -hmm. And then you're assessing things. And which, by the way, is why I generally recommend, if we're talking about diet, so someone who needs to lose 100 or 200 pounds, and I've had the chance to interact with a lot of these people, and they've lost that weight, uh, I will put them on a diet that has the, there are three criteria that I use when I'm trying to, say, you design a diet for an intervention for someone. Number one, adherence. So of 100 people I tell to do it, will I have the highest percentage of compliance possible? And you could tell people, hey, the best workout routine for losing weight is taping bowling balls to your hands and doing wind sprints up and down a stadium stair. Well, not too many people are going to stick with that. Uh, so you look at the adherence, then the effectiveness. Does it produce the desired result? And then the efficiency last in terms of is it, uh, is it time economical, mm -hmm. right, among other things. But the point being, a lot of folks give me shit on the internet. They're like, what? Slow carb beans, that'll make your intestines explode. And I'm like, A, if your intestines explode, like you're training yourself to be weak. You need to fix your regimen. But like B, uh, you could throw a thousand people into strict paleo or strict veganism, whatever your religion happens to be, and uh, one out of a thousand are going to make it. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you use the gateway drug of, say, slow carb diet, which is more convenient, a little easier to work with, in two weeks, uh, let's say someone who weighs 300 pounds and has 100 to lose, they'll probably lose between 5 and 10 pounds in the first 10 days. So treating it as a two-week experiment, they now have the positive reinforcement and the results that will lead to A, credibility for me where I can drive them to do more ambitious things. And step by step, that can then lead them to strict, say, paleo or whatever. But when you, you have to start with the good program you practice is better than the perfect program you quit. You see this in exercise yeah. all the time. Absolutely. People come hot out of the gate and they quit four days later. Yeah. That's you really, really I know what you talked about earlier is for, for me is prioritize and execute, which I talk about in the book Extreme Ownership is, you know, what's the biggest impact you're going to have? Make that thing, take that thing to the top of the list and start working on that one. Yeah. Boom. Done. Yeah, totally. All right. Next question. All right. There was a friend of mine that was older than me and he was always looking for the right girl. 
and the right girl to settle down with and to marry and have kids and all that stuff. And it never seemed to happen. And the reason it never seemed to happen is because he was always looking for perfection. Always looking for perfection. And I told him that, you know, perfection doesn't exist. And I also had another buddy of mine that was, we were like surfing and he was always looking for like the next good time. Always looking for, he was looking for happiness, right? And one time we're surfing and I go, bro, you keep looking around for happiness? This is it. This is it, man. We're surfing. This is happiness right now. Do you ever feel like you're searching too much and looking for something instead of enjoying what you have? 10 years ago, I would have said yes. Right now, I feel like I've found found, uh, a few things, meaning realizations and... I view my job as testing things on the fringe and reporting back. It's like half <laughs> like ethnobotanist might be eaten by cannibals plus a little bit of athletic stupidity <laughs> and really trying to find the things at the extreme so I can inform the mean. And as an experimentalist or an experimenter, I view that as my responsibility, my job. And I've, I've also replaced a number of words in my life so we we used happiness because it's just the easiest reference point for a lot of folks uh i think that the better word is excitement so i i chase what excites me now that's a razor's edge you got to be careful with but when i say excite it means i wake up excited and i go to bed exhausted basically is what that means and uh, I've also realized that there are things to optimize and there are things to savor. And I don't have a lot of trouble with that. Most people would think that I'm just like speed reading poetry and you know, <laughs> watching every movie on like 28X forward with subtitles just to cram in as much Mr. Robot as I can or whatever. And no, uh, I, I, I feel like I am increasingly better at the appreciation portion of the equation, the achievement I've always been, I wouldn't say hardwired for, but very well trained for. I'm good at putting goals in the sights and achieving those goals. But if you're constantly looking for the next thing, whether it's the next goal or it's the next girl or it's the next high, then you are never going to be operating in the present tense. Was there something that you said 10 years ago, if I would ask you this, you would have probably been on your heels a little bit. Is there something that happened where you said, you know what, what did I just, you know, did you get home from a trip one time and say, what did I just do? Or was there a No, I can a tell moment? you. I can tell you. It was, uh, <laughs> so this, this is related to something that, uh, you know, Robert Rodriguez, who's the director, producer, writer, musician, everything. He's mm-hmm. a fascinating guy. Also huge. I didn't realize how big he was. So Sin City, go down the list, right? He's, he has a, a lot of hits. And he said, I always find it funny, and I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, he's, he's one of the longer chapters in the book. He said, I always find it funny when filmmakers come up to me, brand new filmmakers, and they say, 
nothing went the way it was supposed to go. Like this happened and that happened and shit broke and then we missed this shot and da, da, da. And he said, they don't realize that that's their job, that nothing is going to work. Like if you're the director, your job is nothing's going to work. Uh, so at one point, I was feeling uh, maybe existentially scattered. I was like, well, I'm trying all these different things and doing all these different experiments and when am I going to figure out my thing? And then at some point, someone just said, no, your thing is going meta. Like your thing is doing these types of experiments. And what I realized is my my one thing is learning things quickly. And whether that is cooking or sniping, I've taken some sniping courses. That's a separate story. Uh, rally car racing, whatever, right? Tango, doesn't matter that the approach to deconstructing these things and learning them quickly compounds. So if I get better at one, I get better at the next. It doesn't matter what the subject area is. So that's my one thing. Uh, and it just gave me great peace of mind. A, you don't need one thing in a traditionally defined sense. Maybe your thing is, as I have found, you know, being a human guinea pig and trying to train people to be better learners is my one thing. Uh, and that, that made me feel more confident uh, in this sort of experimental approach. I don't have 10 year plans. And I used to, that used to bother me a lot. I am no longer remotely bothered by that uh, because I have two week experiments and I have six month projects. And if I do my, we, we actually talked about this and you've written about it, but rather than worrying about the, the next 17 promotions, you just do what's in front of you. In my case, say a, a book project, if I do an exceptional job, I knock it out of the park with this one thing, opportunities will present themselves that I couldn't have conceived of right. six months ago. And then it's just a matter of paddling for the wave. <laughs> That's but, awesome. Yeah, but I'm a lot better at appreciation than I was along, uh, say, 10 years ago. Uh, because uh, 10 years ago, it didn't matter how, how well I did, what I won, what I accomplished, I was always obsessing on the next thing. Yeah. I never took the time to actually enjoy it. Good lesson. All right, and this is this is almost down the same line of thinking. So I, we we I kind of see you as the king of outsourcing, right? Um, but for me, my whole life, I was doing a job that I absolutely loved—a job that I wouldn't outsource to anybody mm-hmm. ever. And I feel like I was really lucky. And even even right now, like I'm doing this podcast. You know what? I love doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. And people have sent me, "Hey, we can help you." you know, set up for it and help you. I, I, I would read books for you and give you notes. I'm like, no, I don't want you to help me read books and give me notes. I'm doing that. That's what I'm doing. So is there a job that would satisfy you that you said, or what, let me ask you this. What jobs do you do that you like, I own this thing and I'm not going to let anybody else do it? The podcast, for instance. It's my favorite part of book writing without the book writing. It's fantastic. <laughs> and... uh nobody's trying I don't have some like suit who's paid to manage the bottom line with, with no creative bone in his body trying to tell me how the podcast should be run it's fantastic yeah, so yeah. I think that uh, the podcast I could see doing indefinitely right. and there are many things like that for me I mean I could see doing pe- well I'll give an example just because I, I have to take the opportunity to talk about Tango on the Jocko podcast just God. to shave your nuts. We'll edit this out later. So, <laughs> so the the reason I stopped doing it, I mean, I got to I got to the World Championships, uh, but the reason I stopped. World, wait, 
I, I was a semifinalist in the world championships. Yeah, in tennis. Just, I, I don't even know. I can't what even, that means? I can't even imagine what the world championships in tango is. I know tango's a dance, but how do you no. attack the other people? <laughs> <laughs> like, how do you get them yeah. out of the arena? How do you what throw do you them do? out of the yeah, ring? What happens? It's uh, well, it's, it's very delicate. So there's points. Is there points or something? Yeah, they're judges okay. and so on. It's just like a, like an uh, like di- a diving competition, zero to ten kind okay. of thing. But the, the point being, I stopped because I left an environment in which it was highly competitive. I, I went from Argentina where there are dozens, hundreds of world-class dancers to the U.S. where there just uh, are a fraction. There's like seven. A handful, <laughs> right. Oh, it's 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 Bob again. Okay, <laughs> great. Uh, so the, the, um, the one thing, honestly, is teaching people to test assumptions and become better learners. That's it. That's my thing. So that's the one thing. That's the constant through all the books through the podcast, don't believe everything you think, detach, to use your word, right? Assess and test the assumptions and <laughs> get better at getting better, ultimately. Um, that, that's it for me. But I, there are many things that I do now that I could see doing for a very, very long, decades, for sure, uh, including the podcast. Good. Yeah, the podcast, uh, we, we were talking about this earlier. The g- great thing about the podcast is, is that you can do whatever you want. Oh yeah, it can be three minutes long. It can be three hours. It can be thirty hours long. You can talk about whatever you want. No one's gonna it, just do what you want. And that's uh, in, um, if you've written a book, the amount of other people that start to weigh in on that thing, it's it's can be a little bit. It's not oppressive, but it's just not as nice as hey, I'm gonna turn this on and do whatever I want, which is a good feeling. All right, and and speaking of doing whatever you want. And I know that's kind of how you set your life up, which is awesome. But to take that that notion to the extreme, if you got diagnosed with a horrible disease, and I, I try to think of a better way to ask you this question, which isn't like majorly depressing, because this is, but if you got <laughs> diagnosed with a disease that was going to kill you in a year or 18 months, what would you do with those months? So I role play this all the time, uh, not not because I want to dwell in the darkness, but this is part of the rehearsing the worst case scenario. So not only do I rehearse this for myself, but I try to spend time around people who are going to die. Uh, and when I get back to the Bay Area, I actually want to volunteer in a hospice center to contend with that. Uh, there are a few things. So I would I would get my affairs in order relatively quickly. They're already largely in order so that my family would be taken care of and to be honest and there aren't many points in my life where I could say this I would largely keep doing what I'm doing mm-hmm. honestly <laughs> uh, I, I think that I stopped for instance the tech investing about two years ago because I felt like I was replaceable I felt like if I in a sense didn't participate there were a hundred other people in line who were gonna step up and write a check and that wasn't a unique opportunity nor a unique skill that I held to hopefully put into the world to benefit people in some way. But uh, the, you know, all the ludicrous experiments, some uh, more practical than others, and the podcasting and so on, I feel like I'm putting out the best work that I can. And I think I'd keep doing it. I'd certainly, and, and in the last few years, I've, uh, after reading essay, I think it's called The Tail End, 
by Tim Urban on Wait But Why about how effectively by the time you're 18 and leave the house, you've spent 80% of the total hours you would ever spend with your parents. Uh, I've reorganized my calendar and my year to spend a lot more time with my family, uh, meaning my parents and my brother. And I think I'd keep doing what I'm doing, honestly, until uh, awesome. until I slift, you know, end up in a pile of dust, which is where we're all ending up. It's where we're heading <laughs> sooner or later. Yeah, exactly. you had some, I was listening. I, sh- I, I keep wanting to do this. I want to, when I'm listening to certain podcasts, sometimes I, I want to just live tweet, like when I'm th- having thoughts about them. Mm. And I, I do it with Rogan sometimes. I, I go, man, I should just be live tweeting this. Because sometimes when he had, who do you have on? Oh, when, when he had Sam Harris on, I was just, there were so many things that they were saying that were just hilarious to me. And I want to just live tweet. But when you had Shay Carl on, at one point, I can't remember his quote. There was this, you got to this topic and you know, you, you know, of what you would do, and it wasn't the same question, it was, but it was somewhere in the same thing. Maybe it was about money, and you got enough money now, or it was some, something along those lines. And kind of at the same time, you know, he says, he says something like, you know, just imagine being able to spend all this time with your family. And then you said at the same time, Cocaine and whores. <laughs> and I was like, I wanted to live tweet that. I was like, that's gold. Yeah, Shay and I had spent a couple of days together. Yeah, <laughs> and, classic. Uh, and which, just for those people who don't have any context, he's also you know, uh, raised uh, Church of Latter-day Saints, you know, Mormon, yeah. Utah. And uh, so I was like, cocaine and whores? Um, <laughs> Which is the nature of my podcast. <laughs> I thought that was classic. It's the little things. It's the little things. <laughs> yeah, that was another one I wanted to live to because he was saying some really classic uh, lines in there oh, as yeah. well. Um, all right. Normal day to day, okay? No imminent death that I just placed, but you're healed, my son. <laughs> Thank you. Demons No disease. Uh, it seems like you've gone through your life going from all these different hobbies. You talked about tango. You talk about jujitsu. You, you wrestled. You did judo when you were in Japan. Now you're talking. We show up here. You're talking about archery, right? You got all these different things going on. For me, I've only had a couple things that have made me feel that way, that thing, right? Number one is combat. That's that's as good as it gets. For me, jujitsu is the next thing down. It's this empty brain and just awesomeness. And surfing is up there too. Maybe jamming with my band, getting it on in that way. How come you're jumping around so much? And is there anything that you always go back to? So I jump around. I had a, I had a conversation about this uh, with one of my very close friends, Josh Waitskin. So mm-hmm. Josh Waitskin, for those who don't know, He's the inspiration for the book and the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer. He was a chess, well, considered a chess prodigy. I take some issue with the name. He doesn't like that label either. Uh, very good at learning just about anything. He's also the first black belt under a uh, incredible jiu-jitsu athlete and teacher named Marcelo Garcia. Legit. Who is... <laughs> and Echo finally chimes in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, when Echo chimes in, he just wants to point out that, yes, Marcelo Garcia is... <gasps> Legit. Yeah, Marcelo is one of the finest grapplers in the last hundred years for sure. And which, uh, which, by the way, makes him the one of the best grapplers in the history of the world and the universe. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, good. Yeah. No, this is this completely true. I mean, I've not to go down the the Marcelo rabbit hole, but uh, I had the opportunity to train with Marcelo, and it's just 
another planet. <laughs> it's and it, actually it, Josh invited me when I when I get out to New York. Josh said, "Hey, come on by the academy." I'm like, "Okay, yeah, no problem. I'll yeah. be there." So when we're gonna get out there, he's like, "Oh, we got geese and everything." He's like, "You got everything." Yeah, just like service. Oh, it's so it's it's a fantastic school. That. It's a fantastic school, and uh, he's applied his learning approach to jujitsu. He's applied it to tai chi push hands. He was a world champion. And he's he's applied to a handful of things, but not a lot. He's not as as frenetic as I am. But we've we've spent a lot of time together. He's a very close friend, and he said, and this is you know, his words, not mine. But he he feels like I am one of the best people on the planet at getting people from zero to eighty percent of a skill as quickly as possible. And he's focused on the last one percent, mm. getting someone from ninety nine to hundred. So he works with some of the biggest names in the finance world. Uh, people who are very under the radar, to get them from, say, <laughs> beating 99.99% of the competition to 0.999. And I think those are complementary skill sets. But for me, the high that I get is different from the high Josh gets. The high that I get is taking someone, for instance, I didn't learn to swim. We talked about this. I didn't learn to swim properly until I was in my 30s. Uh, for a host of reasons I won't bore everybody with, I did a TED Talk on, on why that is as absurd as it is. But taking someone who hasn't hasn't been able to swim ever and getting them in two days to the point where they can swim, say, open water in the ocean for a half a mile, which is completely feasible. It's completely possible for someone who has some athletic background. That's my high. Showing someone that the impossible or what they thought was impossible is not only possible, but in a time frame that seems completely unrealistic, that's my high. Uh, so I think that's part of the reason I jump around is in part to learn, but it's also being able to teach someone in a way that saves them hundreds of hours and just to see their head go. And you get that, obviously, then you get that satisfaction yourself when you try something for the first time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's there's nothing better for me. I mean, when I figure out, for instance, with, with archery, uh, blank bail practice, and I'm like, oh, my God, it's just like dry firing with a pistol like to fix your, like, casting or healing. It's like, oh, my, it's the same fucking thing. Oh, my God, you know, and then... I get all excited because I'm piecing these things together or, oh, the way that you train someone, figure out their eye dominance. Like if you're constantly missing basketball shots by like an inch, you probably haven't figured out your eye dominance. It's like, oh, then you shift your center line slightly so you're raising the ball in a different way. Oh my God, it applies in the same way to bowling, even though no one even talked about bowling. Those types of things get me very excited. I always thought I was going to be a teacher because I had these coaches and teachers in ninth or 10th grade who steered me from this very bad path onto a much better path. I mean, a lot of my friends growing up, Long Island, ended up overdosing, dying. My best friend growing up was one of them, or drug addicts or alcoholics. Mm -hmm. And I got steered in this other direction. And that ninth, 10th grade window is what I always thought I would go back and teach. So I love teaching. So that's why I jump around. But uh, what, what creates the zone for me is... Partially just that aha moment is exciting for me. So I, I do spend a lot of my time looking for fertile ground. So it's a new skill set. But these skill sets compound. So like the better you get at learning any skill, the faster you will learn subsequent skills. Uh, but if I had to default to a few activities, I would say it's, <laughs> and I have to be trying to be smarter about this, but it's a physical activity with a component of danger. That's yeah. it. It's a physical activity with a risk 
with real stakes of some type. So that could be rally car racing, which is very physical. It could be jujitsu. It could be a different martial arts, a Thai kickboxing, where I've probably spent the most time outside of jujitsu and wrestling. Uh, those would be the activities that that put me in the zone by necessity because yeah. the penalties are so swift and so immediate <laughs> and so severe. Uh, strongly incentivized to not think of the Al free runs you're going to hit when someone's trying to kick you in the head. Similar question. Next one down the, down the list here. Now, I was with a friend of mine the other day, and we were doing some work on his car. Just like body work, right? You're sanding, and then you're polishing, and then you're sanding again. You're polishing, and you're painting, priming, and all this stuff. And there's a certain level of detachment and sort of, for lack of a better word, like a zen mindset where you're doing this thing, but you're not doing it, right? It's the same thing with cleaning guns. You know, you're cleaning guns. You're just there. It's just a very calming thing you know sometimes when i just need to relax i'll just clean my weapons i think everyone kind of does that <laughs> but it, do you do do you do that is there anything that you do that you do that puts you in that state of mind of that just lets let you kind of relax oh absolutely there are there are a number of them and I, I view them as medicine i need consistent dosing of these things uh, the first few that come to mind a swimming now that mm -hmm. i do for fun which blows my mind to this day because i'm so cool. terrified awesome. of it forever but swimming laps just a very repetitive left, right, left, right. That rhythm is hypnotic for me. God, somebody asked me the other day, like, oh, do you still swim? I said, no. I, I surf, but I, I don't swim. Like, I swam enough. My whole, my whole life has been swimming. Yeah. And I don't swim, like, um, on purpose. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, and the reason somebody said why, and, it's, it's, and I, I said boredom, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe I need to revisit that because so that, that boredom is, yeah. is, can be a positive thing. It can be. So I find uh, this is, I mean, one of the reasons that I, this is slight, this is different because you'd have to pay attention with this one, but dog training. Uh, I, w I went really deep with dog training and for a lot of folks, it's really monotonous. Mm -hmm. Shaping a behavior at a high level is extremely repetitive and I find it therapeutic. I love it. So swimming would be one. And here's how I make swimming a little more interesting to me. With swimming, I focus on the efficiency of strokes per, per length. Mm, so you've got a little challenge going. I have a, a challenge. Game you're playing. I, have a, I have a game. Or I will look at, instead of, say, right, left, breathe, and then breathing to the alternate side. So you're breathing every third stroke. I'll try to do every fifth stroke. And I, I, I have these metrics that I use to keep me motivated. That's the little Scooby snack. Mm -hmm. Uh so uh, cooking, I find something I always hated until maybe three years ago, no more, five, five years ago, I find also very uh, present state forcing. It's a forcing function for me. When you're trying to figure out five different dishes going at the same time and timing everything, you don't have any slack to think of other things. So I, don't, I, I very rarely cook for one person, meaning myself, but having groups over... Uh, we had an entire pig for my birthday a few months ago and uh, spatchcocked for those who don't know what that is is you basically splitting it down the middle and then spreading it out like a pancake and uh, we just created this raging <laughs> inferno in my backyard uh, with a pig and fish and all this stuff and everybody was involved probably 10 different people and I was not the uh, the commander in chief for that one we had, a, we had a, a friend who really knows what he's doing 
but just one of the most relaxing experiences that everybody had had. Yeah. Everyone came away from that after two days of being involved, and it, they said it felt like a six-month vacation. I think that this is a problem for me, right? In the military, you, it, you starting really early in the military, you eat for time, you eat for to get fuel, fuel in your system, and I'm really not a good relaxed, let's take some time, prepare the meal, sit around and eat it. I'm shovel it in so we can go to more stuff. I don't enjoy that enough. And I love eating. I mean, I love eating, but I don't ever just sit and relax and eat. I'm always in the game, like trying to get that food down so I can go and get after it some more. Any any kind of detailed practice for me where I have immediate feedback uh, is it can put me into that zone. Shooting, shooting steel. I was just yeah, shooting steel. Uh, particularly if I'm doing any type of drilling at close distance with a handgun. Mm-hmm. Uh, although th- there are different types of feedback for me, if I'm doing longer range marksmanship, then I'm thinking more about a lot of my breathing and so on. With the with pistols, you know, if I'm using a whatever Glock 34, or M&P 45, whatever it might be, uh, the focusing on the subtleties of predicting when you're going to pull the trigger, the flinches and uh, the sort of stutters and stammers that can affect the shot, and then making an adjustment, mm-hmm. and then taking the next 10 shots. I just I find that endlessly interesting. Interesting isn't the right word. Yeah. Endlessly focusing. That's another thing that the military kind of screwed up for me, <laughs> is because <laughs> shooting in the military on the best ranges in the world with unlimited ammunition and all, that's what you, it's your job. And so you get in this mode where you're just loving it, and and then you get in the civilian world, and you know you go to the range, and the the ammunition costs money, right? And you're, you're all angry about that, and then they say, oh, you can't shoot steel in this range. And I, what about moving targets? What about you know? I want things, and you just get used to. It. So, so you get spoiled in the military a little yeah. bit. And there's some great civilian ranges out there as well that that offer the same thing that I'm love to utilize. It's awesome. Uh, good. All right. I like that. There's some kind of a dichotomy between Zen state and shooting, but it's all and good. Irish flute. <laughs> My preferred. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's cool. All right. Now here's here's another one. So when I retired from the Navy and got out and started the consulting business, working and one of my risk averse friends that was staying in the military for its. It's welfare program, right? It's a, it's a paycheck, right? And he, the guy wasn't, you know, he wasn't all fired up anymore, but he was in. And so he had a mortgage to pay and kids to feed. So he's just staying in. And he, he kind of looked at me when I was getting out and I said, well, yeah, man, I got bills to pay too, but I'm going to go and, and get, get after it somehow. And he said, what are you going to do if it, if it, you know, if the business doesn't work and you end up, you know, you're going to come back in and about, what, what are you going to do? You won't be able to get back in, blah, 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 blah. And I said, bro, worst case scenario. Everything goes to hell. Guess what I'm going to be doing? I have an RV. I will be in my RV with my family. We'll be driving up and down the coast of California, raiding jujitsu schools and training, and I'll be surfing. And it's all good. And it won't cost me barely anything to do that. My retirement will cover. It'll be good to go. You got a backup plan like that? <laughs> well, let me, let me rephrase yeah. that. If you needed a backup plan like that, mm-hmm. what would it be? This is this is one of my favorite topics. Uh, so I would say that I have an infinite number of backup plans. And the way I think about that is by 
doing what I call fear setting. So much like you just said, looking at my goals, the worst things that could happen, the ways I could mitigate that and the way I could get back to where I am now, if all hell struck at once, helps me to remove the fear of taking these these steps that might paralyze me otherwise. The, the second part is by, say, practicing fasting, practicing spending no money for certain periods of time. I don't fear, I would say, the top handful of things that tend to stop people from taking what they perceive as risks. The other very important thing is that risk has a very specific meaning for me. And I realized early on that people talk about risk tolerance, taking risks, but if they don't define it clearly, it can it can end up being paralyzing and how nebulous it is. So for me, risk is very simple. It is the likelihood of an irreversible negative outcome. That's it. So most things I do, even though people look at it, they say, oh my God, this guy's investing in speculative startups when it's just one guy and an idea. Man, he's a risk taker. I don't view myself that way at all. I view myself as, if anything, someone who's very, has taken a lot of time to get good at mitigating risk. I'm a risk mitigator. Uh, And in the case of, say, speculative investing, I am only using money that I can comfortably afford to lose. Mm -hmm. And for me, backup plan, similar to yourself. (laughs) You know, throw my dog in an RV, get get some instant oatmeal, Sleeping bag, Yosemite's right in my backyard. Mm-hmm. I don't know, go find some dirt bag climbers and hang out there. Good to go. Yeah, go hang out with my parents, get to see more of them, go for a run in the woods Yeah. while I'm trying to figure out the next step. It's the- and you had that attitude when you were taking more legitimate risk. I mean, right now, obviously, you're you're pretty good to go. Mm-hmm. And but, but in the beginning, when you moved out, to the West Coast, yeah. you ha- you had to have the similar attitude of because I know I did that 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 attitude for me freed me. Yeah. Like, oh, worst case scenario, I lose everything? Cool. I'll still have my RV. It's paid for. Yeah. yeah. We're good. Yeah, totally. I, I had that attitude. Got more surfboards than <laughs> any other human should ever have. But it's all. And, and, and not, knives and surfboards. <laughs> I, uh, we roll deep. <laughs> I, I, I think I had that realization early on. And of course, when I first graduated from school, went out to the West Coast, uh, I did not have a lot of money. I remember when I came out to California for the first time for a job interview, I couldn't afford a hotel. I stayed at the Fairtex kickboxing gym on the second floor, sleeping on a bunk bed with a Thai instructor sleeping above me, and washed my clothes in the sink. <laughs> Good to go. And I was happy. Uh, I mean, uh, I was fully content. I, I didn't feel like I was missing anything. And uh, uh, But let's not kid ourselves. I mean, when I first moved out, it was 1999. This is at the peak of the bubble. Rental prices are out of control. And I was making 40 grand a year pre-tax. And, Get uh, some. Yeah. And my, my office, my desk was in the fire exit. I mean, they, they was completely illegal. I, I was, I, I had to, <laughs> I, I had a, a pretty slick setup, but it was very low budget. And, uh, but, but really what I think freed me on some level is realizing, and this hopefully this doesn't sound prickish or arrogant or whatever, but no matter what difficulties might befall me, whatever uh, unemployment might come my way, there are people with fewer resources, with less education, who have figured it out before and survived. Yeah. So if 
dozens or hundreds or thousands of millions of people have figured this out. I'm going to come out the other end and be fine. Yeah, and a, uh, so that, that was very reassuring to me. Yeah, that's, that, that is a good one. And we'll move to the next question. Any misconceptions about you that you want to clear up? <laughs> well, uh, you, you, actually, you actually confirmed a misconception for everybody. Tonight, you said, oh, well, you know, if Jocko's going to train somebody, he's going to need to beat them. And that's like people always think that. And it's just so wrong. So wrong. <laughs> so wrong. And I mean, I, I don't, I'm not going to go into it now because I talk about it on the yeah. podcast all the time that that stuff is ineffective and you, you actually have to lead people. And you, you know, So but that was a good misconception. You piled on. I'll, have to, I'll now spend another five years trying to debunk that and prove to people that I'm not a drill instructor with a lash. <laughs> But it's good. Thank you. Appreciate no, it. Which was, was deliberate. I'm just done. <laughs> Jocko's so effective at busting my balls on Twitter, and then everyone takes it literally. I'm like, okay, well, I have to take this opportunity. But the So first misconception, so the uh, cocaine and whores, only twice a week, folks. <laughs> it, is, it is not disabling. Uh, I, that's a joke, internet, by the way. So the I'd say the biggest misconception is... Uh, and it's very understandable. Look, I mean, my book titles, I didn't expect the four-hour thing to become a thing. So the four-hour work week, funny story behind that. The, the original idea for the title, and I had dozens, but the one that, that I ended up testing first was the two-hour work week, which was about as the amount of time I was spending managing my company at the time. And uh, some people at the publisher were like, that's way too unrealistic. <laughs> two hours a week. And I was like, four hours a week? And they're like, that's so much better. I was like, okay, perfect. <laughs> Nailed it. And uh, it sounds like a product you'd see after like the spray on hair and before the rotisserie chicken at three in the morning. I mean, it yeah. sounds like an infomercial product. So I get it. But the biggest misconception from people who have not read the book or books is that I advocate idleness. Oh, okay. And that's not the case. I have no problem with hard work as long as it's focused on the right things. So I think of maximizing per hour output. That doesn't mean I advocate dropping a bunch of acid and like watching your cat walk around the house for 12 hours a day that doesn't do much good for anyone uh so that that's the biggest misconception yeah. uh I, I have no problem with hard work i just abhor doing something well that shouldn't be done at all i think that's a waste of skill and a waste of energy uh that, that's the biggest I, yeah. I, I, there, there are plenty of other ones <laughs> you know something too that you need to watch out for is just because you work hard doesn't mean that you're doing good Right, I mean, there's yeah. there's a bunch of little sayings about that, but just because you're working hard and getting up early and and you think you're getting after it, you might be moving a lot, but you're not making any progress. And there's a big difference there, and I think that's yeah. something that people need to watch out for as well. Right. So the, for instance, I think the prioritize and execute. People need to. <laughs> I think that's such an important starting point. Like, like what you do is infinitely more important than how you do something. If you have a list of unimportant to dos and you're killing it with the unimportant to dos. <laughs> That's that's still a chalking up to a loss. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you're still losing, my friend. You're still losing. Uh, so for me, it's I, I. When people ask me about time management, I'm like, no, no, no. Like if you don't have time, you don't have priorities. So focus on the what should you be doing. And for me, you know, the effective executive by Peter Drucker is is the classic there. Don't worry about your apps and your email management and so on. Just like read a book that's a few decades old that just talks about prioritizing. Uh, so the, the, the biggest misconception, yeah, just the whole four hour shtick that is my blessing and my curse forever. <laughs> that part, that which is another reason why this is my first book without four hour in the title. Oh, 
Hopefully yeah. it'll sell. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I also lo- lost the Timothy and went to Tim just so I don't have to feel like I'm getting chastised by my mom every time. I'm what made you interviewed. go Timothy on the first ones? I don't know. <laughs> Sounded more official. I have no idea. I honestly have no idea. Awesome. All right. Uh, we're getting... we got one more question here. You, as a leader, right? There's actually millions of people that follow you, right? That listen to you, that respect what you say, and they they truly follow your lead. I mean, clearly, they follow your lead. We saw this with uh, with the the launch of or the release. What's it called when a book comes out? When my book came out, oh, the release. Came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had kind of predicted everything that was going to happen to a T. Of like, yeah, when we talk about this book, it's going to you know people going buy it. That's good, it, and so people clearly follow you and and listen to what you say as a leader. And I don't know if you foresee yourself that way, but you are a leader. Two questions. One, where do you think you fall short? And two, and more important, where are you trying to lead people? Yeah, these are good. Uh, So I haven't thought of myself as a leader, uh, but I think that two terms sometimes get used interchangeably and I view them as very different. So as a leader, if I'm looking through that lens at myself, I think I'm very good at affecting national conversations and steering the attention of groups to one thing for sustained periods of time. I think I'm very good at that and helping people to prioritize. If I were to view myself as a manager, I think I have many deficiencies. Uh, And one of them would be, and this has been a help and a hindrance, as many things are, uh, impatience. I have extremely high standards and hold myself to just a ridiculous degree of expectation for perfection, which of course (laughs) leads to a lot of the problems we've talked about earlier. But on the flip side, I I get a lot done in part, I think, because that is, is a driver that can also damage relationships very quickly. And it can in a management environment, uh, cause hurt feelings and people to not put forth their best because they feel like they are being criticized and not lauded for their successes. And in part, that is because as an athlete, I really, and hopefully this doesn't sound weird, I don't really care if it sounds weird actually, in sports and in business, my general feeling was, and I remember a mentor early on said something like this to me. He said, don't tell me about the good stuff. The good stuff takes care of itself. Just tell me about the bad stuff. And that's always been my personal policy for myself. But that does not always translate well. to team environments. So that, that I think is my, my, my homework that, uh, and, and, uh, deficit that I've been working hard to correct for the last few years is getting better at managing people who do not necessarily conform to that mindset at all times, which I think can be, uh, a big problem mm-hmm. when it's, when it's out of control, but that, that would be the biggest deficit. But if we're, if we're defining leader as someone who, can 
put forth a vision or an objective or catalyze a movement and move attention in people in one direction, I feel like I'm, I'm quite good at, at, at mitigating the risk of that. Uh, and sh because, for instance, people think that the haters, this is a very popular word on the internet, and not all critics are haters, of course. Important to be able to take criticism and feedback. But many people who are thrust into a position where they have the opportunity to lead people virtually on the, on the internet, which is a, a huge responsibility, and I take it extremely seriously, worry about, say, their detractors causing problems. It's not the detractors, in my experience, that can do the most damage. It's the diehard fans who get the message wrong, yeah. who get the directive and misinterpret it. That, that is where you have to do damage control and think ahead. So I think, I think I'm quite good at that. As far as where I'm leading people, if I'm leading them anywhere, uh, I, I've always, I shouldn't say always, but for the last at least five years, thought of my goal as creating a benevolent army of super learners, effectively, who can teach in turn 10 additional people each the same skill set. So to propagate a toolkit that enables people to be elite problem solvers instead of accidental haphazard problem creators <laughs> is has been my goal for at least the last five years explicitly teaching people how to learn so they can teach people how to learn that's right and part of learning is problem solving so you're by by definition getting people who are good at dissecting problems testing assumptions that's where i'm leading people yeah, that's that's solid. I mean, that's obviously a, a really positive thing. I always talk about the fact that you know I want to help people learn how to learn. I, I talk about that all the time, and I've said that before on the podcast. You know, we, we, well, teach people how to not not what to think, but how to think. And obviously, I'm not the same scale that you are in terms of volume of masses of people, but there's definitely some people out there that I think are following me in some way and that might be a strong word but i always think that what i'm trying to get people to do if you're following me i'm really trying to get you to follow yourself mm -hmm. and lead yourself i don't i don't you know lead yourself okay you see it my path that's cool my path was good i like my path now forge your path you know figure out where you want to go how you're going to get how you're gonna get stronger, how you're gonna get faster, how you're gonna get smarter, how you're gonna get, how you're gonna get better. And I always think that those answers work best when they don't come from somebody else, but when they come from yourself. Absolutely, and I think also the teaching people how to learn, uh, enabling my audience to learn how to learn. And when I say that, I mean 10, 100 times faster than would be expected in a lot of domains. That's only one leg of the stool. So let's say there are three legs. The other two would be teaching them to dissect and manage fear. And then the third leg would be teaching them to be emotionally aware and resilient. And that, I think, is covered largely by stoicism. If you take it as a practice and not as 
something to passively ingest. Yeah, and I just talked about stoicism on my last podcast because somebody hit me up on Twitter and says, do you practice stoicism? And I was like, no. I just said no, because yeah, I'm pretty terse on Twitter. <laughs> and, and the guy kind of wrote back, I don't want to say he was offended, and I don't want to rehash the whole story because I just talked about it on the last podcast, but you know, he said, hey, well, well, you know, what's wrong with stoicism? And, and I wrote back, I'm like, man, there's nothing wrong with stoicism. I, I, I get it, but for me to say that I practice it or even that I learned it from studying the agents is not true. I didn't go to Princeton. Right. I, you know, I didn't study. When I was in high school, I wasn't an overachiever. I was an underachiever. I was a, I was a troublemaker. So I didn't learn anything about stoicism until much later in my life. My roots aren't, my beliefs aren't founded on what I read. They're founded on what I lived. And it's just, does it make sense? Yeah. When I look at it now and people have always asked me, are you going to do Marcus Aurelius on the, I'm going to do Marcus Aurelius on the podcast. And, and really all I'd be saying is like, look, Marcus Aurelius said this uh, thousands of years before I did. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and but I, I, I would love to be all educated, but I wasn't. I was just, I went down the path that I went down mm -hmm. and experienced the things that I experienced in my life and I came to the same conclusions that these ancients came to. So it's an interesting dynamic. No, it is. And I, I think it's worth noting also that if you find anyone who is consistently good at operating at a high level in stressful environments... The tools are the same. Exactly. I mean, if you read uh, one of my favorite books, Musashi, mm -hmm. historical fiction, fantastic book, it's all the same shit. Mm -hmm. You read that. Stoicism, Stoicism and Seneca was my real introduction, but that didn't come into my life until 2004. So it was after graduation. For those of you that want me to do Musashi on this podcast, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do Musashi, and I'll tell you why. And if you've read it, you know. You can't. You gotta go through Musashi to get to the end. Yeah. You gotta go through the whole thing to get to the end. It is one of the best rewards in all of literature <laughs> to get to the end. And the end, this is a, what's, how many pages is Musashi? It's 900 something It's It's massive book. And it's, and you have to read the whole thing. And it's all good. But it all comes, and it's literally, I think in my copy, because I always laugh about this, it is two or three pages from the end of the whole book. It's where you get to the end of Musashi, where you go, damn, that just happened. Oh, the yes. Oh, the payoff is so oh, good. Oh, the payoff is so good. And the oh, and I'm not going to do it on here, because obviously I'd have to give away the payoff. Yeah. And so I'm not going to do that. And you have to go and read Musashi. It's, it's awesome. And the ending is just as good as it gets. It's it's as good as it gets, and it's historical fiction, but that happened. Oh, yeah. That's documented. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't get any better. So read Musashi for yourself, people. Maybe I'll give a, like a one-year lead time, and then I'll do it. One year. Uh, episode 100. Maybe we'll do... Give people enough heads up. Episode 100, we'll go back and do Musashi. If you, and I'll give a, a, a spoiler alert at the beginning. Because Musashi's good when you get to the end and go, God, yeah. Is that kind of like The Matrix? What's that? The movie. <laughs> <laughs> Is there like a spoiler at the end of uh, The Matrix? Yeah. Oh, does it? Kind of, I guess. Uh, I don't know, man. I got to watch more movies, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More Echo Charles movies. I highly recommend Babe. Involves a pig. I think you'd like a Jocko. <laughs> Did, didn't you watch that a bunch of times or something? <laughs> you got some Babe story, right? So, oh, 
<laughs> yeah, I do. So I, I tend to, when I write books so that I don't feel isolated, I will generally, I write late at night. That's when I do my synthesis. So I can do research and interviews and so on, but I'll do my writing generally between 11 p.m. and 5 a.m. And so that I don't feel like I'm sitting in a cave by myself, I will generally listen to the same track or same album over and over again for a given book. That's how I focus. And then I will have a movie playing on mute in the background <laughs> so that I feel like there are other people in the room. Now, at one point, <clears throat> I was like, all right, I've seen The Born Identity 5,000 times. I don't want to see it anymore. I have seen, because that was for the first book. I've seen Shaun of the Dead, which is a comedy, 6,000 times. I don't want to watch that anymore. Because I'll just, I'll just watch it on repeat. So I might watch a movie five times a night. Okay, let's go to Amazon Prime. And I pull it up, and the first movie that gets displayed is Babe. <laughs> About a little pig and, and Farmer Hoggett. And I put it on and I was like, oh, this is hilarious. This is all right. Well, I'll pick a real movie after this. And then I was like, good God, this is a fine film. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the renegade duck. Anyway, uh, so yeah. Babe, I don't think you'd actually like it. I think you'd be disgusted with my recommendation. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't watch enough. I don't watch a lot of movies. Um, kind I, think, of, I think you'd like Narcos, which is a, that, a, a that, miniseries. That, I've heard of that about one. Pablo Escobar, right? I think I, I've heard about that one. Yeah. I just then then you're then you're jumping into what like thirty hours of content. That is only yeah. You're looking at about twenty. Yes. Yeah, yeah, then you're in the <laughs> vortex. You know yeah. what? You know what I want to watch that? Like when I'm seventy-eight. I'll watch Narcos. Put that on my list. Did you have any questions, Echo? Yeah, I have a question. Sure. Echo Charles, chiming in. Yep. For the second <clears throat> time. You know how, like, I'm going to go to entrepreneurship. Sure. You know how uh, it feels like, anyway, that it's kind of become like a trendy thing to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of times, like, you might even notice people, they don't know what they want to do. They don't know what problem they want to solve or product they want to develop. They just want to be an entrepreneur because it, it seems like it's like this cool, the cool thing now. Do you find that to be the case? And if so, mm -hmm. is that a good thing? <sighs> yes, entrepreneurship. I think that it is highly romanticized and uh, it's easy to believe. All you got to do is drop out of college and the next thing you know, yep. you're Zuckerberg. Yeah. And you have a company worth billions of dollars, but that's not how it works, folks. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, so I, I do think that entrepreneurship is a mindset. You don't have to start a company to be an entrepreneur. It's, and if you were to look at the Spanish equivalent, you know, like emprender, to like undertake. It is someone who makes something happen. And you can innovate within a company that is not your own, within an organization that is not your own, or you can create a company. So it's someone who makes things happen at the end of the day. So who is it? Is it in a, are we in a boom cycle? I think if we're looking at tech entrepreneurship, absolutely. Uh, I think that there are certain experiences every human being should have, even if they fail. Uh, I do think that starting a business or enterprise, even if it's a side gig that they moonlight, is worth the education. Uh, but there's a huge survivorship bias out there. Meaning, so you open a Barron's, let's say. And lo and behold, you see all these mutual funds advertising. Oh my God, they've had incredible returns for 10 years straight. Mm. Well, uh, maybe they're just the mutual funds that happen to survive 
by luck for 10 or 20 years, they happen mm-hmm. to place the right bet. So of the 500, well, the other 490 are no longer advertising. You so you're getting, a, you're getting a false sample size. And you see that a lot with entrepreneurship. They don't mm-hmm. talk enough about the failures. They don't talk enough about the vast majority who will fail. Is it good? I think that it's good for certain groups. It's certainly good for investors if they can play the game well. Because even if there are a thousand shitty ideas, that might mean if more people, a higher percentage of, say, high schoolers or college students or otherwise are going into entrepreneurship, that you get an extra five that change the world at mm. the end of the day. Mm. Uh, so I am, I am a, a big fan of entrepreneurship, even though, much like anything else, uh, that is perceived as high risk and therefore treated sometimes with reckless abandon where people are throwing Hail Marys when they should be doing risk management, mm. you're going to have a high fatality rate. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I don't view that as a bad thing yeah. necessarily. Uh, but I do think that, and this is actually a, a question that Brian Johnson, who's a, f- a friend of mine, he started a company called Braintree. It was sold for, I think, $800 million cash to eBay. and uh, he, he settled, huh? Yeah, he settled. <laughs> he uh, so he shows up in uh, in Tools Titans as well. But a question that he asked because he's constantly flooded with various questions from entrepreneurs who want to make eight hundred million dollars. Right. They say, "Oh, well, what should I do? This should I do that? What about this idea? What about that idea?" And he just asks them, uh, "Is it an itch or is it a burn?" And he's like, "If it's just a little itch, don't do it. You're gonna fail." Because for the other people out there where it's a burn, they can't not do it, they're going to rip your face off. Mm. And uh, that, I think, is a very good question. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the other one, uh, which I think originally came from, let me think about this now, Vander Holyfield's first coach told him that he could be heavyweight, or at the time, a probably cruiserweight champion of the world. And he asked Evander if he wanted to do it. And uh, he said he didn't know. He had to ask his mom. So he went back, asked his mom, yes, I would like to do it. He said, well, is that, is that, a, is that a dream or is that a goal? Those are two very, very different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think that uh, if you feel like you can't not do it, mm-hmm. or on the flip side, as I would probably approach it, if you can look at it as a short-term experiment where you're doing a phase one, to see if you can develop any traction or get 10 friends to buy, whatever it might be. And you can cap the downside. I always think about this first. I don't think about the 800 million I might make. How can mm-hmm. I cap the downside? Mm-hmm. Then by all means, you're, you're taking, in my opinion, the measured intelligent approach. Mm. Hey, yeah, throw a bunch on the wall and see if anything sticks. Yeah, because that's not really like the, the trend, the fad, you yeah. know, that I mentioned. Um, that's not really what it says. Um, it's like saying... I mean, now we kind of have this emergence of like the grind, work hard. And that's now that's kind of cool. You know, the the working 20 hours a week, like that's kind of becoming like, you know, uh, who is it? Uh, Gary V, how he, you know, grind. Oh, 20 hours a day. Yeah. 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 It's it's it it can work. I think that you just have to be careful. What I would suggest everybody do, and I'm not sure if it's still on Wikipedia, I believe it is. Study cognitive biases. Humans get themselves into a lot of trouble with cognitive biases, whether it's sunk cost fallacy, you've put X amount of money or time into something and therefore you continue to put good money after bad because you feel like you have to make it back the same way you lost it, or the the survivorship bias that I Mm -hmm. talked about. 
you have, there's a big difference between correlation and causation, things that happen at the same time and things that, for instance, and things that cause something else to happen. So you, you just have to ask like of a thousand people who do X, how many are going to get the outcome that is being showcased? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is, I don't know, then you should be really careful about assuming that A leads to B, right? Uh, and for me, it also comes back to the adherence. So if, if I'm trying to coach 100 entrepreneurs, and if I'm talking to three entrepreneurs, it's very case by case, but if I'm talking to a class, which I did for a long time, class of high-tech entrepreneurs, 100 students, hypothetically, I want the advice I give them to apply to the greatest percentage of people in the class as possible or to be usable. And if I say 20 hours a day, there might be one or two mutants who can do that and sustain it. Mm. The rest are going to flame out. And for me, in that environment, it's about finding first sort of the, the good program you can follow mm. as opposed to the best program that will knock out 99%. Mm. But environment dependent. Now, if we're in buds, okay. That's, <laughs> that might be a different situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're training dogs for, say, military or police utilization, probably a different story. Mm -hmm. If you are looking for athletes for ultra endurance competition or 24 hour plus competitions, you are looking for mutants, make mm -hmm. no mistake about it. Mm -hmm. uh, but if I'm trying to encourage the greatest number of people to attempt entrepreneurship and succeed, then I'm going to adjust my advice accordingly. Hey, do you ever, I get a lot of sleep for instance, people are like, Oh yeah. my God, that Ferris guy is a four hour. You must get two hours of sleep a night. Yeah. I've done, all sorts of weird stuff with sleep deprivation. I've done polyphasic sleep where I've gotten whatever it is, two to four hours a night for ages on end. But my default is eight to nine hours a night. I love sleep. I'm sorry, Jocko, but I yeah. love it. Hey, do you ever get um, like, you know how like entrepreneurship as like this, the trendy thing to do. Do you ever get annoyed when you see like po posers? You know, once you, you know how they subscribe to all the things and then they always want to talk about it and they use all the jargon, you know? I would say, I'll tell you what annoys me more. I don't mind people who are blissfully unaware and extremely enthusiastic because quite frankly, we, well, I shouldn't speak for everybody, but I think everybody's been there. Like I remember <laughs> graduating in 99. Oh my God, was I excited to get into tech and entrepreneurship. Because yeah, I remember yeah. this fact, I, I kind of knew a friend of a friend who sold a company for some ungodly sum of money, 300, yeah. 400 million. I was like, what? That guy's smart, but he's not that smart. Yeah. And it was a very exciting time. And I, I don't think in that, in that world that excitement can be undervalued, really. I think it's the fuel. I think it's, it's a big part of the fuel. The people who bother me are the B players who think they're Elon Musk <laughs> or the, or the once you're lucky, couldn't pull it off twice or didn't attempt. Like once you're lucky, twice you're good. The people who had good timing and now think they walk on water. Yeah. Like the, like the kind they start like a, a course now, those kind of guys. Oh, there are a million different varieties. <laughs> and I mean, I'd like, I'd love to see them all run off a cliff like lemmings. I mean, they make me absolutely insane because the best of the best of the best, when you meet them, they don't act like dicks. Mm. Well, I should take it back. There are probably a few, but 
in general, they have nothing to prove. Yeah, they have yeah. nothing to prove. Like Marcelo Garcia, he doesn't walk around with invisible lat syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like mean mugging people in the street. Are you kidding me? He could he could destroy all. He just doesn't. He's so far above it. He doesn't care. Mm. He's a nice guy to begin with, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the, the folks who walk around with a lot of attitude and are acting. Here's the here's the description. Entitled. People who feel like the world owes them something, those people make me insane. And there's a lot of it in Silicon Valley. That's part of the reason I stopped all of my early stage tech investing two years ago. I was like, I'm out. I'm out. This is no fun anymore. For a lot of reasons, but that was one of them. I was like, I'm sick of sitting down with people who have something sketched out on a piece of paper and now they're asking for $20 million or a $20 million valuation. Mm. I'm just like, what have you done? <laughs> I, Hey. Good on you. Great plan. I know you want to change the world like everybody I've talked to today with your photo sharing app. Fantastic. What have you built before? Because you walked in here like you're you know, levitating because you walk on water. And I appreciate the confidence slash arrogance. But what have you actually built? The entitlement is what I can't stand. And uh, one of my favorite answers I ask people a lot of the time, if you could put anything on a billboard. What would your answer be? So there are a few favorites. Discipline equals freedom. That's one. Another is no one owes you anything. That's a good one. No one owes you anything. It's from a multiple-time world champion. And, uh, yeah, I think that uh, by hook or crook, a lot of the entrepreneurs and otherwise who feel entitled will get served humble by, whether it's by competition or by the universe. So. I don't have to do it myself. Yeah, I was gonna say I don't think this even has anything to do with entrepreneurs. You know, yeah. you just get people that are people, acting yeah, that that's way. How, that's yeah. just the way it is. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Don't, it is interesting. Don't be that guy. Yeah, yeah. my uh, my brother he goes to San Francisco from time to time. He has a tech company, um, <laughs> and they uh, he 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 said it's interesting that it's this fad now. Like you have like groupies of tech entrepreneurship. Like you have fanboys, you have posers in, to be a business person. You know. It's oh, not yeah. like, you know, like a rock star anymore. It's like, ooh, I'm a tech entrepreneur. Oh, yeah. It's, you know it's, I mean? uh, it's a weird environment, but I, I'm very much of the opinion that as perverse as it might seem or as perverse as it is on many levels and weird and unsustainable, there's good that will come from it. Yeah. Um, the more entrants you have in the race, it's just like the more freaks and mutants you're going to find. And yeah. those, those people are interesting. Yeah. So I'm cool with it. I'm just going to wait until there's blood in the streets and the game's a little easier for me. <laughs> <laughs> all right echo yes um anyone wants to support this podcast how should they do it they, they do by the way if they do. i heard yeah on twitter and whatnot um they do and here's the way first off support yourself as i always say if you don't know kim ferris i know you know about this stuff but i'm gonna say it anyway supplementation talk about efficiency from time to time i know shroom tech utilizes oxygen more efficiently in your body. That's what Shroom Tech Sport is for. Understood. Did, did I already say that before? You said it before. Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> on it has a bunch of stuff that's on it. That's the supplementation that you want to engage in because you don't want junk uh, supplements. So go on it.com slash Jocko. Get 10, 10% off and supplement your wallet as well. And then, of course, the Amazon click through. Christmas is coming up. Christmas is coming. Various birthdays. I'm not going to say when mine is, but it's soon. <laughs> if you shop on Amazon, click through our website. You can support this podcast in that uh, in that way if you're in the mood to. 
Um, so yeah, you go to the website, jockerpodcast.com, click through, and then do your shopping regardless of what you're buying, whether or not you're buying Tim's book, Tools for Titans, or, uh, or duct tape, whatever, <laughs> right? Yeah, you can buy some duct tape on there. You can buy Tools of Titans. Yeah. yeah, you could actually use duct tape to make a handle and turn it into a kettle book, as you mentioned. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a big yep. book. You yep. can get Jocko White Tea, which is when though because it's, it's back. It's back. We're there. By the time this podcast releases, I think we'll be there. We ordered a ton this time, so you can get it. You can buy the book Extreme Ownership. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have enough Jocko, Jocko does make a number of cameo appearances. In Tools of Titans. That is right. That is right. That is, uh, I am in Tools of Titans, which is awesome. And I appreciate you, uh, you throwing me in there. Of course. And, um, and just a ton of, ton of other great information. Um, I also got some mugs coming. You can buy mugs. Those are good mugs. They say, they, I tried to keep it simple. You know what they say on it? They say, get after it, because yeah. that's pretty much their answer to everything, right? Yeah, and you can kind of tell, like, because it's going to be knockoffs potentially. <laughs> There's like a an official. It's been approved. Jocko seal approved. Of approval. Yeah. The Jocko approved. Some people, if they get bumper stickers, which I might mention in a bit, but the envelope that comes, some of them are Jocko approved. Oh. That's all I'm gonna say. Yeah, about and it. these mugs, these are manly mugs. <laughs> uh, I, I could fit probably yeah my entire fist into this mug. <laughs> if you get chased by a cassowary, you could probably crack its skull with this. It's uh, it's a very functional piece of. Uh, Porcelainware or that's, whatever this is made what out we of. Do. Carbon fiber, Tactical. maybe. That's what we do. Multipurpose. What else? Well, of course, we have the store, mm. Jocko store. If you like shirts, if you wear t shirts from time to time, hoodies, winter coming up winter in the United coming. States. Australia might be different, but, um, you know, they're the heavier hoodies. But yeah, shirts, if you like um, shirts and whatnot, check them out, see which one you like. And then if you buy one of those, that's a good way to support the podcast if you're in the mood to do so. And as Jocko said, the tra- uh, the mugs. Hey, I'm gonna change the the, the travel mugs. Okay, we're gonna improve them. We're, we're, we we approve that. <laughs> there you go. I like it. There you go. Boom. Yeah. But yeah, go in there, see what up. See subscribe if you like to it. the podcast. Yeah, you subscribe to Tim Ferriss's podcast if you don't already. You probably do. Most people do. <laughs> yeah. Check it out. Just passed YouTube. Yeah. Oh, no, just I was the, just gonna say, just passed 100 million downloads. So it's the first business interview podcast to do so. When are you gonna start stepping up your game, though? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Every day, I'm trying to step up my game. And the YouTube channel, which Echo has now begun yep. to engage in, which is appreciated by more all so. of us. Yeah. Me over here, I'm appreciating it. Yeah. So thank you for doing that. There's more videos coming out. Excerpts. Yeah. So I I do have to kind of disclose disclaim uh, whichever um so i was going into a a, a, through a camera transition phase so the excerpts there was a small delay on that but the 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 transition phase is is over and we're good to go so we'll do more um excerpt stuff i want to make another disclaimer and disclosure which is uh for those of you who see this on video I apologize for shopping at Gap Kids for my shirt. <laughs> These guys are fucking huge animals, and I wanted to feel more confident. <laughs> Gap Kids. No, I like it. Anything else? Oh, uh, you know, that's it. Hey, that's it. Also, we did it. The Extreme Ownership Muster in San Diego, California. It was awesome. If you want to come and you're on the East Coast, you want to come May 4th and 5th. 2017 extreme ownership muster number two in new york city marriott grand marquis 
It's going to be awesome. And I'm going to tell you, I've, I haven't said it yet on the podcast because I wanted to give people the opportunity that are already in the game and are tracking to get there. But it's going to sell out. It's selling really quickly. So if you want to come, buy now. Extreme Ownership Muster, you'll probably come to this one. Yeah, it's in my backyard. Well, if I'm on the, on the East Coast especially. <laughs> you missed the first one, but it's all good. I don't hold it against you. <laughs> I won't even get into the apology and the explanation. I'm looking forward to number two. Awesome. Uh, Tim, you got any closing comments? Uh, closing comment, just to bring it back to the very beginning. Uh, if you're feeling alone with whatever doubts, challenges you might have, you're not alone. You're far from it. And honestly, at this point, that if I've learned anything from interacting with hundreds of thousands and millions of people on the blog, through the podcast, all humans have the same problems. And at the very least, you have a large brotherhood and sisterhood, thousands of people at a minimum who are feeling, going through the exact same thing that you are. So do not feel alone. And... Uh, that's, that's pretty much it. I would say uh, there's some samples up if people want to check it out from Tools of Titans. Uh, I was it's, it's surreal for me, but Arnold Schwarzenegger wrote the forward, which is incredible. He's in the book. And uh, that's up. The introduction is up. How to use this book. So if you want to check that out, you can just go to toolsoftitans.com. And if you want to continue this conversation, by the way, you can find all three of us out there on the interwebs. <laughs> You can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, and you know you can even find us on that Facebooky boha. <laughs> Echo is at Echo Charles. I am at Jocko Willink, and of course, Tim Ferris is T Ferris. Two R's and two S's on Twitter. Tim Ferris on Instagram, and of course, he's also on that Facebooky. He's not hard to find. And to everybody. That's listening. I want to say thanks to Tim. Thanks to Tim for coming on. Thanks to Tim for actually getting me to do a podcast. It was you and Joe Rogan. You, as soon as you pressed record on our first one, you pressed you press stop. You looked at me and said, you need to do your own podcast. And I was pretty uh, packed for time right then because the book was coming out. But as soon as Joe Rogan said, it to have you two tell me that, I was in. So thank you for making me do this podcast. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate all the support that you've been giving me and, and Echo and the podcast and the book and everything else. Thank you. It's much appreciated. To everybody else that's listening, thanks to you for listening. First and foremost to the people out there in uniform, military, police, firefighters, paramedics. By the nature of your very job, you are serving all of us. So thank you for that service and thank you for the freedom and security that you provide us and the rest of the people out there. The troopers out there that have your own battles around the world. Fighting against apathy, fighting against mediocrity and fighting like we all do sometimes, fighting against the darkness. To you all, remember. Remember that this isn't easy for anyone. Remember that anything worth anything is worth fighting for. 
Remember that the battle doesn't fight itself. You are the one that has to fight it. Remember that there's a price for victory. And that price is hard work and early mornings and late nights. And that price is unmitigated daily discipline in all things. In those times when you can't remember everything I just said, just remember this one thing. To get out there and get after it. So until next time, this is Tim and Echo and Jocko out.